When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends, Jared Halverson here. Welcome back to Unshaken. Uh, and congratulations on graduating from our five-week crash course on the book of Isaiah. I hope you miss him already, to be honest. I hope that you were able to overcome whatever Isaiah-phobia you might have had before, and that you realize that he is worth whatever effort it takes to unpack and unlock his, his messages. Years ago, I was teaching Isaiah to a seminary class, a bunch of teenagers, and by the end, one young man said, you know, Isaiah gets a bad rap. He's not as hard as everybody says he is. I think people are afraid of his reputation and it scares them off from actually giving him a chance. Uh, but once you know a little bit about Hebrew poetry and once you start looking for rhymes and once you slow down to try to make sense of his symbolism, he's amazing. Uh, and that was the best feedback I could have possibly received. I hope that happened to each of you and that you came to understand him better. You came to appreciate his eloquence. And most importantly, you came to rejoice in his message of the Messiah. My, my biggest hope these last five weeks was that the Holy Ghost would help us fulfill Nephi's hopes. That by studying the words of Isaiah, we would be more fully persuaded to believe in the Lord, our Redeemer. That suffering servant, him of the beautiful feet upon the mountains and the engraven palms on his hands. Him that he that is the nail in the sure place, him of the robes of reminding red. I love the Lord, and I'm grateful that Isaiah paints such beautiful pictures of him. And so I do pray these last five weeks have been a blessing to you. Because we'll see Isaiah again next year in the New Testament when Jesus quotes him, when uh, Matthew draws attention to every time one of his prophecies is fulfilled. We'll definitely see him again in two years when we're back to the Book of Mormon. And he'll be scattered throughout the Doctrine and Covenants as well. You can't go long in Scripture without bumping up against something from Isaiah. He was just that powerful a prophet. We're going to be moving on to Jeremiah this week and next. And Jeremiah is an incredible person to follow. I mean, who, who has the guts to follow in Isaiah's footsteps, right? That's, that's, that's a tough act to follow. Uh, Jeremiah did an amazing job. But before we get there, I want to just say one quick thing about Isaiah's death, which is not found in the Old Testament. What we do know from the Old Testament is his ministry lasted a long time. It went from about 740 to 700 BC, which was incredible history. He was there during the Assyrian invasion, the, the scattering of the northern kingdom. Between him and, and Hezekiah, king of Judah, they barely survived. Yeah, they barely were able to help the, the kingdom of Judah outlast and outlive the Assyrians. The, but, be, but because Isaiah outlasted and outlived Hezekiah, he was around for the reversal of all of Hezekiah's reforms. Hezekiah was an incredibly righteous king, but he had an incredibly wicked son named Manasseh, who reversed all the reforms of his father, who, who turned back the clock in many ways and brought it, uh, Judah back to the kind of idolatry that Israel was famous for and got destroyed for. 
he even brought back child sacrifice. Few kings of Judah were more righteous than Hezekiah, and few kings of Judah were more wicked than Manasseh. And Isaiah lived through both of those reigns. Well, he didn't live to the end of Manasseh's because Manasseh put an end to Isaiah's ministry, according to Jewish tradition. It would make sense that Isaiah would be persecuted. As one who cried repentance and bore witness of righteousness, of course Manasseh is not going to want to have any part of that. He'll want to, to silence his opposition. And according to Jewish tradition, and that's what this is, we don't know this for sure from other historical records, but this is a very old tradition according to which Isaiah was running for his life, trying to flee so that he could continue his ministry. Uh, he was in a forest, and he found a hollow tree to hide himself inside as Manasseh's troops were in search of him. But according to one account of this tradition, as he hid inside this hollow tree, unbeknownst to him, just the hem of his robe was sticking out, visible from the outside. And Manasseh's men saw that, knew Isaiah was inside, and chopped down the tree with Isaiah alive inside. With That's one tradition. Another version of that tradition is that rather than Isaiah hiding in the tree, Manasseh found uh, Isaiah, put him inside a hollow log, and then sawed the log in half lengthwise. With uh, Some traditions even say he used a wooden saw, which would have been more painful because it would have been less effective than less of a quick death than metal would be. One tradition even says that Isaiah didn't die until the saw got to his mouth, as if to say that he refused to die until his mouth was no longer operable, and I can no longer cry repentance or bear witness of the coming Messiah. Again, we don't know the historical accuracy of those kinds of traditions, but we do have one hint in the New Testament that suggests that that's at least a possibility. In the book of Hebrews, where the writer is our tour guide in the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11, and he's walked you through the Old Testament to point out displays dedicated to Abraham and Sarah and Moses and so many others that he names by name, and you get to see there in the Hall of Fame what got them in, what amazing examples of faith they showed. But it seems that this tour guide spent so much time on those notables that it's a closing time, and there's still whole wings of this of this hall, this museum, this hall of fame that we've missed. And so he kind of sprints you through at the end of the tour, and stops naming name and just names and just points out. And these, some people did this, and some people did that. And I hope you enjoyed it, and come back for more. Uh, at the end of Hebrews 11, he says this, for example, verse 36 through 38, and others besides the ones he named by name had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. Yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. So this is the persecution section of the museum. This is the martyrdom wing. He says, they were stoned. They were sawn asunder. And that's where we pause and think about Isaiah. Is the writer of Hebrews aware of that tradition? Or is he, does he have access to better documents that, that remain, than remain to us? Is this Isaiah he's talking about? We can't know for sure. What we can know is that there were those that suffered that kind of death. And if Isaiah was included among them, what a way what, what, to have to face something on that level of torture because of his witness of truth. The, the verse goes on, they were tempted, were slain with the sword, 
They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. And then my favorite line of the whole chapter, of whom the world was not worthy. I can't know for sure if that earlier phrase re refers to Isaiah, but I know that final phrase does. The world was not worthy of him. King Manasseh was not worthy of him. I only pray that we can be worthy of his words and that we can hang our hopes on the nail in the shore place, that we can trust who hath begotten me these, that Israel will be gathered, that him of the reminding robes will return, as Isaiah prophesied. We now have to fast forward 100 years from the death or the, or the end of the ministry of Isaiah in 700 to the, the ministry of Jeremiah in 600 BC. It's been a rough and tumble century between the two, uh, some white righteousness and a whole lot of wickedness in between. By way of quick review, you had Hezekiah reigning in righteousness for 29 years, followed by his son Manasseh reigning in horrible wickedness for 55. Plenty of time to reverse the good his father had done. You then have King Ammon, only two years, but wicked ones. Then Josiah, who turns it all back around. King Josiah was amazing, and so 31 years of righteousness and reform. But that doesn't last long, and righteousness always seems to be followed by an overswinging of the pendulum back to wickedness. And so you get Jehoahaz for three months, Jehoiakim for 11 years, and Jehoiakim for three months, all of which were wicked for those three kings. And then Jehoiakim is replaced on the throne by a puppet ruler uh, under uh, Babylonian rule, uh, dom domination, and that is King Zedekiah. He reigns for 11 years before his sons are killed before his eyes and then his eyes are put out. Brutal time period. We covered this history at the end of 2 Kings, but it was lightning tour. And that was just a historical side. Now we go to the prophetic side. And what are prophets saying during this time period? What is Jeremiah saying during the period of Zedekiah? This, by the way, is where the Book of Mormon begins, right in this moment. If you look at the very first chapter, 1 Nephi 1, verse 4 says that it came to pass in the commencement of the first year of the reign of Zedekiah, so he's our king, king of Judah, my father, Lehi, having dwelt at Jerusalem in all his days, and in that same year there came many prophets prophesying unto the people, Two things. Number one, that they must repent. Or, number two, the great city Jerusalem must be destroyed. Jeremiah is hidden within that passage. Jeremiah is one of those prophets that comes into Jerusalem to cry repentance. One of many. Ezekiel is ministering during this time period. He's most famous for what he says there in Babylon, uh, while they're in exile, captivity. This is the period of Daniel and his friends, though they're off in Babylon as well, having been carried captive in the earlier wave. This is the time, obviously, of Lehi and Nephi, and they're being sent abroad to be scattered in hopes of someday being gathered again, off to a new land of promise. But Jeremiah, of all those names I just named, is the one that we know best for having to stay behind. He's not carried off to Babylon. He's not sent to a new promised land. He's stuck at home watching it all unfold and, and doing those two things, crying repentance. You must repent or the other must. We must be destroyed. In fact, that introduces to us one of the, the most important vocabulary words we can add uh, to your list. The word is Jeremiah. 
And yes, it's named after Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the prophet. Jeremiah is a whole genre of preaching that Jeremiah was most famous for, uh, to the point that it's named after him. And a Jeremiah is a cry of lamentation. Jeremiah will write the book of Lamentation. We'll study that next week. It is a warning of woe. It's exactly what Nephi said it was. You have to repent or you're going to be destroyed. You see, Jeremiads are famous. Again, it's, it became a whole genre. And you will see it so much today and next week from Jeremiah himself, its, its namesake. But throughout American history, for example, we are famous, especially in early America, Puritan times, for Jeremiads from the, the Puritan fathers who left England because England was going to hell in a handbasket as far as they were concerned. And they saw the, the societal woes that were happening all around them, this lack of worthiness on their part. They were trying to purify the Anglican church. Why, that's why they were named the Puritans by the Anglicans. When they got to, the United, when they got to America, it wasn't the United States yet, uh, and they were setting up this city on a hill that could not be hid. Well, wait for the next generation, and you start seeing some people slack off spiritually. I mean, there's an old joke, uh, I think H.L. Mencken first coined it, that said a Puri he defined a Puritan as someone deathly afraid that there's somebody out there somewhere actually having fun. <laughs> well, there's uh, some truth to that joke. But really what the Puritans were after was an incredibly high level of spirituality. And when they saw people falling from that, declension is what they called it, uh, that our generation was good, but then this next generation is starting to slack. And they cried repentance and raised a voice of warning that if we don't shape up as a society, then doom awaits on the horizon. Those were Puritan Jeremiads. When I was at grad school, I read a whole book called The American Jeremiad. And it described that, that Puritan history and the kind of preaching that took place there. Let me just say this, because we're going to have to skip a lot in the next two weeks. Jeremiah is an incredibly long book, 52 chapters. And we have to squeeze in Lamentations as well. We're going to cover t this week, Jeremiah 1 through 29. And we will have to skip a lot of verses. I'm not going to skip any chapters. I want you to see at least something in each one so that you can keep the storyline moving. But just trust that anytime I skip something, it's more of Jeremiah, Jeremiah-ding. <laughs> That's not a verb. But it's more of Jeremiah's Jeremiads. He is raising a voice of warning. He is decrying the lost spirituality and the wickedness of his people. He is warning them that there are consequences to sin. And he is lamenting that the people aren't changing to avoid those consequences. Some people have dubbed Jeremiah the weeping prophet. And we will see his message mingled with tears. Uh, those are the tears of every Jeremiah. And... We often hear them even from prophets and even politicians in our day that things are going south and we need to make a change. That, in a nutshell, is the book of Jeremiah. And let us, let's begin studying it. Chapter 1, we meet him right off the bat. Verse 1, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests that were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. Now, Anathoth was a Levitical city. It's just a few miles northeast of Jerusalem. So when Lehi says that, or when Nephi says that prophets came into Jerusalem, 
it wouldn't have been very long of a walk for Jeremiah. The fact he comes from a Levitical city would suggest his lineage. Uh, he is a priest from that group, and so he's used to the things of God. He's used to sacrifice and trying to help people tap into divine power, uh, receive remission of their sins through this symbolic sacrifice pointing to the, the Messiah. But what does he learn here? The beginning, as he's called to the ministry. Next verse, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of, here's his list, Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. So he was there for some of this religious reform. That's the good part of his ministry. Not many tears then. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. So he's lived through a lot of incredible history as well. In fact, you could say this, Isaiah is to Assyria as Jeremiah is to Babylon. Isaiah was prophesying during the Assyrian invasion. And thankfully, enough people listened to him that they were able to avoid destruction at the Assyrian hands. Fast forward a century plus, and Jeremiah is alive during the Babylonian conquest. Unfortunately, the people wouldn't listen to him, and sure enough, the southern kingdom was destroyed. The temple was de demolished, the city brought to its knees. Uh, most of the people carried back into Babylon as captives, and this Babylonian exile will be one of the defining periods in Jewish history. Uh, Jeremiah was there on the front end of it, trying to help people avoid that sad and sorry state. Now, keep reading, though. Uh, now that we've contextualized things and put Jeremiah in his historical moment, look at verse 4 and 5. This is the first things we, that we really learn about him as God reaches down and calls him. He says in 4 and 5, Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. This is one of the most powerful and clear verses on foreordination and premortal existence than you could ask for in Scripture. The whole storyline of premortality is best shown in Abraham chapter 3. But as far as the Bible is concerned, this is more than just a hint. In the New Testament, you'll see the story of the man born blind and the apostles ask Jesus, so whose fault is this? They had the same Job-like misunderstanding that sin equals suffering, and therefore suffering is evidence of sin. So they're wondering about this man that was blind. Whose fault is this? Who did something wrong? But their question's fascinating, because they say, is it his fault or his parents' fault? Now, if it's his parents' fault, they did something wrong, and so they gave birth to a boy that had this, this challenge. Uh, yeah, so chalk it up to them. But the fact that the apostles would even entertain the possibility, could it have been this man's fault? Well, wait a minute. He was born blind. And so if you consider this evidence of some kind of sinfulness, when would he have sinned if he was born in that condition? Oh, oh interesting. Again, is this, there's a hint that there was a belief in premortality among, the, among them, uh, the apostles at least, right? Well, that's just a subtle hint. This is a much more obvious one. Jeremiah, before you were born, before I formed you in the belly, so even preconception, I knew you. And now some would say that, that, that don't want to touch premortality with a 10-foot pole, 
will say, well, no, that's just God's omniscience. It's his foreknowledge. And so he knows that there will be a prophet named Jeremiah at some point. But that doesn't mean that Jeremiah existed as an individual being uh, beforehand. Oh, that was just God's knowledge of the future. Well, I'll grant you that it was God's knowledge of the future. But it was also God's knowledge of Jeremiah in Jeremiah's past. I mean, it's pretty clear. Even before conception, long before birth, I, not, I don't, didn't just know you. I sanctified you and ordained you to be a prophet among the nations. There's an incredible book. If you, if you want to go deep on this topic, Terrell Givens wrote a book published by Oxford University Press. So this is not some devotional work uh, to bear testimony to Latter-day Saints. This is an academic work to, to teach scholars out there about the doctrine of premortality. The book is called When Souls Had Wings, and it's quite the read. He go, it's, the, it's a history of the idea of premortality throughout Western thought. And he goes back to oh, the, the ancient world, Mesopotamian myths and so on. He talks about the ancient Greek uh, philosophers and their ideas on that topic. He walks you through early Christianity uh, and Catholic fathers, uh, that, that believed in the doctrine and others that wanted to, to squash it from the start. He walks you through British uh, poets and writers, American transcendentalists. Of course, he has a chapter on the Latter-day Saints because we're the only church that still holds to that ancient belief, a long-standing doctrine that seems to keep popping up no matter how many times so-called orthodoxy tries to push it back down. Uh, Terrell even said that what was hardest about writing that book was trying to keep the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints confined to a single chapter. He didn't want it to overpower the rest of the book. Because the point was, we're not the only ones that believed in it. We're the only ones that do now as a church. But it has so much explanatory power that it just can't disappear. Uh, it's, it's just too true. It, it answers too many questions. And Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5 is one of those go-to verses to show that we existed before we were born, that God knew us, that God forgave us, and that God sent each of us to the kingdom for such a time as this. That was the case for Jeremiah. A textbook right there. I sanctified thee. Remember the verse in what uh, Alma chapter 13? That we were forgiven of our premortal sins through a preparatory redemption? That's Jeremiah being sanctified. And that, as Joseph Smith taught, anyone that's ministering for the salvation of others in this life was foreordained to that very uh, opportunity or that very office before the world was. That, uh, that applies to us all. And so to think of God knowing Jeremiah, this is going to be important for Jeremiah because his particular time period is rough. Uh, and the kinds of things he will have to suffer at the hands of those to whom he's crying repentance, that's going to be tough too. So Jeremiah, you better know that I know you. And that you've been prepared for this particular mission for a long, long time. Remember section 138 of the Doctrine and Covenants. We received our first lessons in the world of the spirits before we even came to the earth. And that would have been the case for Jeremiah as well. So trust me on that. And believe that I'm sending you at the perfect moment based on your premortal preparation. You got this, Jeremiah. You've had this for a long, long time. There is something magnificent about the doctrine of premortality that should give us hope 
to be able to navigate the lifetime that we're, that we're here on this planet. That we should be able to trust that God knew what he was doing long before we came. To those who push back against the doctrine and simply think, oh, no, 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 this is just God knowing that there would someday be a Jeremiah. A good friend that I made on my mission, and we were, we were close enough that we could have real honest conversations. And he was pushing back against premortality and saying, no, 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 back in Adam and Eve, it just says that God breathed the breath of life into them. That's it. And I was like, really? That's all it is? Uh, physical element, there's the dust, and then God just breathing, and that's life? That's the soul? Uh, I, I laughed and said, it, what, so what are, what are evil people? Bad breath? Is that what that is? Is God blowing bubbles? Because you have the, just that little thing and you put the wand down in there and the blow and, and then out pop all of these immortal souls? Now, if we have no end, it suggests that we had no beginning, at least that nothing that we can wrap our heads around and that we lived with God before we came. That's why I love the Pearly Great Price accounts of that, that God didn't just breathe his breath into Adam's body. He placed Adam's soul into Adam's body. He placed Eve's spirit into Eve's mortal tabernacle. And thus they became living souls. Their own independent existence, living souls. It's such a powerful doctrine. Uh, and again, that's the best hint we have of it in the Old Testament. I mean, there was the one in, in Job, right? When all the sons of God shouted for joy, as he's speaking about before the creation of the world. Again, if we have eyes to see, this is a, a deep doctrine and one that does keep popping up. We just have to be able to recognize it. But like I said, this is to reassure Jeremiah because a difficult mission is on its way. Look at verse 6 and how Jeremiah reacts. Then said I, Ah, oh, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. Now, does that sound like anyone else we've met? Sound like Moses? I'm slow speech, slow tongue. I can't do this. Sound like Enoch? I'm just a lad and all the people hate me. And I can't speak either. They all seem to have that problem. I can't put into words. Notice that Isaiah never complained about that. <laughs> I think I've got the eloquence. I'm just not sure if I've got the worthiness. Remember that one, Isaiah 6? And so he gets touched with the coal off the altar. Oh, the sizzling lip there. But here, I mean, Gideon had the same issue. I can't do this. We probably have all felt this way. And so there's Jeremiah's version. I can't speak. I'm just a child. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child. Why do you think I just told you how long you've been prepared for this? From before the foundation of the world. Jeremiah, you were born a very, very old baby. In the same spirit that had been prepared for this. So don't say, I'm a child. For thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee. And whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. So don't worry about you cannot speak. It's not you that's going to have to do it. Well, yes, it's you that's going to have to open your mouth, but I will give you the words. And so here's the reassurance. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. And he would be. In fact, we'll see later today, almost in a surprising way to Jeremiah, he would be delivered from things that needed some intense deliverance. It's like he took these, this promise, these words, and ran with it. Like, okay, you, you got this. You got my back. I can do this. Well, I think he underestimated just how difficult he, the difficulties he would endure from which God would deliver him. I didn't say that I would shield you from them all from the start, but when you're in them, I will deliver you out of them. 
There's going to be some things that Jeremiah is going to face that are going to be difficult, but God is with him. So don't fear. Don't fear. He then says in verse 9 and 10, and I love this passage, Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. Again, just like God had done with Isaiah. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms. And then notice this list of verbs. To root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down. This is a work of demolition you're being called to. But that's not the end of it. Notice the last two verbs. To build and to plant. Yes, sometimes construction requires some deconstruction beforehand. And if things are built incorrectly, I mean, think about the, the foundation of the Salt Lake Temple. And when they uncovered it after Johnston's army left, and they realized there's cracks here, well, then that's got to go. And we will root up and tear out so that we can start over with better materials. And so they did. We might have to do the same thing sometimes, but also when there are societal structures or philosophies of men or wicked traditions of the fathers that need to be rooted out and pulled down so that we can then have clear ground on which to build, tilled soil in which to plant. Jeremiah, there's going to be a lot of unlearning that people will have to go through for you to be able then to teach them truth. So that's part of the Jeremiah. Cry repentance. Pull these things down. Help them see the consequences that lie on the horizon. But the ultimate goal is not to leave them demolished. It's to leave them rebuilt. So let's move in that direction. He then says in the next few verses, this is from 11 to 16, one of the things you'll notice in Jeremiah is a lot of visual aids. We'll see some really fun ones in two weeks with Ezekiel. Ezekiel becomes God's object in the object lesson, and they're pretty wild. Uh, in Jeremiah's case, it's more a matter of showing things. Isaiah could paint pictures of these metaphors and analogies. In Jeremiah's case, he may not have the language. So he's actually going to do the thing. He's going to show them an object. He's going to do something here. And it's going to start in these next few verses with God showing Jeremiah two visual aids himself. The first is a, a branch from an olive tree. It's like, don't you get what I'm saying? And you picture Jeremiah like, huh? The idea here is this is a branch and it's meant to bud and blossom and bring forth fruit, almonds in its case. Well, guess what's about to happen in Judah, in Jerusalem? This branch has turned so wicked, it's about to blossom and bud in really destructive, negative ways. Babylon is on the horizon and they're coming. And if we don't turn things around, if we can't fix this tree, then this particular branch is going to be cut off and carried captive back to Babylon. So there's visual aid one. The second visual aid is a pot that is bubbling and boiling over. Its mouth is to the north. And this idea here that Jeremiah gets from this visual aid is our wickedness has reached the boiling point. It's been bubbling up for a long time, at least for the last you know, century since uh, Isaiah's day. It calmed down a bit during Josiah's reign, but it is at the the boiling point now, and it's starting to spill over on the northern side. Remember, to come up and over the Fertile Crescent, the Babylonians will come from the north and bring destruction with them. And so we've got somehow to, to, to calm things down and turn off the heat. We need to cool down as far as our wickedness is concerned and turn to righteousness, or we will be scalded by our very own sins.
interesting visual aids. The Lord then says to, to Jeremiah in 17 through 19, Now therefore gird up thy loins. Put your big boy pants on, Jeremiah. It's time to go. Arise and speak unto them all that I command thee. I told you I'd be with you. I, told, I already touched your mouth. I put my words there. And be not dismayed at their faces. Oh yeah, they're going to give you dirty looks. They're going to do worse than that. But don't be dismayed. Lest I confound thee before them. You have to approach them out of a position of strength, not weakness. You've got to know for sure that what you're saying is true. It comes from me. He then says, Behold, I have made thee this day a defensed city, an iron pillar, brazen walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against the princes thereof, against the priests thereof, against the people of the land. And they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to deliver thee. Now that is a packed passage. Notice at the end, I'm with you. As I already said before, and between the two of us, we can't go wrong. So stick with me and trust in me, Jeremiah. The, what I wonder about is before that sentence, though, when it says, they shall fight against thee. What's the antecedent of that pronoun? Is it the Babylonians that are going to fight against you? Well, collectively, yes. But the things he just listed before that were a bunch of P words. Princes, priests, people, and they will all be against you. Ah, they shall fight against thee. Is that the real enemy here? Maybe our real enemy isn't Babylon after all. They're just the instrument that God is going to use for us to be punished for our sins. And the people that could have led us in a better, better direction, who instead are leading us down toward destruction, that's the real enemy here. It's our own people. It's our own culture. It's our own problems. And the priests and the and the princes and the people have all come together going down that downward slope. That's what I'm going to have to... They're the ones I'm going to have to change. And they're the ones that aren't going to want to. They're the ones that are going to persecute me. And sure enough, that would be the case. But again, what would Jeremiah be, thanks to the Lord's help? I love the imagery here. A defensed city, an iron pillar, walls of bronze, especially in the context. Jer uh, uh, Babylon's coming, and we're, they're going to lay siege to the city of Jerusalem. We're going to hunker down behind our walls. Well, at a, such a time as that, wouldn't you want a defensed city? Wouldn't you want your pillars that are holding things up to be iron? Wouldn't you want your walls to be solid bronze? It doesn't get any stronger than that. And that's Jeremiah. More than a watchman on the tower, he is the tower. More than a watchman on the wall, he is the wall. He's trying to defend the city, and he is the defense. As we listen to prophets and apostles, each general conference, do we recognize what God is trying to do? He's trying to fortify the city. He's trying to help us be prepared for whatever onslaught of iniquity might be on its way. He's crying repentance. He's promising us hope. This is a Jeremiah, and we hear some of those every general conference, too. So move forward. Jeremiah chapter 2, the Jeremiah begins. And what specific sins is he decrying and warning the people that they have to change and repent of? 
he's going to use some really powerful imagery. It will uh, reflect something that Isaiah brought up several times, but Jeremiah is going to bring it down to a level of, of I just, it's going to be graphic the way he describes things. Okay, so buckle up and prepare. Jeremiah 2, verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, So I told you I'd give you my words, here they are. Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness, in a land that was not sown. Israel, back then at least, was holiness unto the Lord and the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him shall offend. Evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. Wow, there was a lot packed in there. And though it ends on such a, a troubling note of warning, how did it start? I remember you. You remember when we were young, all that kindness? Do you remember when we were espoused and were deeply in love? You understand the analogy that Jeremiah is using here? Think about how often Isaiah talked about marriage as his metaphor. Uh, the who hath begotten me these. Or the show me the bill of thy mother's divorcement. I haven't divorced you. I haven't abandoned you. You've abandoned me. And that's what Jeremiah is going to build upon. But with even more lamentation than Isaiah did. Because what's happening here, don't you remember when we first got engaged? Think about that. Especially you married couples. How wonderful. It was like just bliss and, and euphoria because you're in love and you meet someone and fall in love and then there's dating and courtship and marriage and honeymoon. And think about that kindness. You, all you were ever doing was thinking of each other and thinking of ways to show that kindness to one, to one another. Think of the love of your engagement and how, you were, how excited you were to actually be married. You went after me into the wilderness. I, it's like I carried you across the threshold into the promised land. That's actually a great way to envision them crossing the Jordan River. It's because the river parted, right? Uh, it stopped flowing so they could walk on dry ground. That's the equivalent of God lifting up the bride and carrying her across the threshold. That Jordan River was the threshold. And then setting her down in this beautiful place the land of flowing with milk and honey. This is where we're going to live together, to live out our days happily ever after. Well, history shows that it wasn't quite so happily. And it wasn't the husband's fault. It was the wife's. It was the bride. It was Israel. At first, it was holiness to the Lord. Engraved in gold, placed across the, the golden plate on every priestly forehead. Don't you understand what, what God intended for you? And what you intended for him when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that was the original betrothal, the Abrahamic covenant, and you will be my people and I will be your God. But where are we now? Now hold on to that marriage metaphor for what Jeremiah is going to describe from here on out. Look at verse 5. And the, thus saith the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me, and have walked after vanity, and are become vain? In other words, what have I done wrong? This is the Lord saying, Lord, is it I? This is the Lord wondering aloud to them, Have I offended you? Have I hurt you? What iniquity have, have, have you ever found in me, 
that would make you leave. Now turn the tables and there's been plenty. But I haven't signed the divorce papers. You seem to be the one serving them, though. You don't want to have anything to do with me. And it's not my fault. You seem to be complaining about divine absence. Where have I been? Well, you abandoned me. You forced me out. And so verse 7 and 8, I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when ye entered, it didn't take long after I carried you across the threshold, ye defiled my land and made mine heritage an abomination. The priests said not, where is the Lord? And they that handle the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me. And the prophets, at least the false ones, prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. This is blasphemy. This is sacrilege. In a word, this is infidelity. And that's the word you need to hold on to throughout the rest of the book of Jeremiah. His ultimate, because he uses the marriage metaphor so much, then going against God, idolatry that is, becomes in a way adultery. Think about the connection between those two words. They don't just sound similar. They are similar. Idolatry and adultery. Adultery, I'm in a covenant relationship. I promised to be true to my spouse. Well, if Israel is married to Jehovah, or in our case, if the church is married to Christ, and we cheat on him, we go against him, we look after false gods and false prophets, we go to graven images or idols, at least in their case, ours is a different version, but the same underlying sin. You're cheating on me, God says. Infidelity is the word we use there in a marriage, but fide, faith, that's the word. If you're unfaithful to your spouse, that's adultery. Well, if you're unfaithful to God, it's the same sin. And infidelity describes them both. So, because of the prevalence of the marriage metaphor that Isaiah covered so beautifully in a positive way in terms of we're still married, Jeremiah, in fact, I'll put it this way. When I taught this one year in seminary, 20-something years ago, we turned Jeremiah into a marriage therapist. His name was Dr. Jer E. Maya. <laughs> and, and Dr. Maya, his job was trying to work things out between this couple whose marriage is on the rocks. No fault of the husband, but trying to coax the wife back into counseling. And will you change? Your husband is willing to take you back despite everything you've done against him. We'll see this acted out literally when we get to the book of Hosea. It keeps getting stronger and stronger in the imagery because nothing seems to be working. Isaiah's kind marriage metaphor, insufficient. Jeremiah's more graphic and brutal infidelity metaphor, still insufficient. Then Hosea, you're going to have to live this one in hopes that people will see the visual aid and make some necessary changes. Keep an eye out for that as we go through all the rest of this. And so again, your pastors have transgressed. Your prophets are prophesying by false things, and none of this will profit you. Yet, look at verse 9. Wherefore I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. I refuse to give up on this marriage 
no matter how many times you've cheated on me, if you just come home and stop, I'll forgive and forget all of those things. I'll never bring it up. But you have to stop the behavior. You've just got to come home where we love you. It's, I don't know if it can, this can get more visceral or more of a, a gut check of how would you respond in these situations? Would you have the forgiveness that God has here if your spouse cheated on you? Again, this shows the mercy of our Messiah. It shows the kindness of Christ. It, the everlasting mercy of our Father in heaven. Here in the Old Testament, no less. Well, God calls them out for two related wrongs in the next verse. Uh, in verse 13, these are things that, the way it's set, set up, even pagans don't do this. Even pagans seem to be true to their pagan gods. Every little provincial pantheon. But they, ought, well, they worship them in the way they should. Why don't you? Well, here's the, here's the two wrongs. Verse 13. My people have committed two evils, and they look a lot alike. First, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And second, they hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see what they've done there? You had the chance to drink from fountains of living water that would never run dry. But you said no. And you turned instead to a cistern. In fact, a broken cistern. Now, what's a cistern? It's the ancient equivalent of those big 55-gallon dr uh, drums that we have in our food storage that hold water. Just in case we ever got to a point where there is no running water, at least we'll have some water to drink that we saved up in better days. In fact, if you know the story of Masada, this is 70 AD when the Romans have come to destroy Jerusalem. And the one last holdout for the Jews was this mountain fortress out in the desert next to the Dead Sea. The hope was, if we go there and the Romans come and lay siege around us, we can starve them out instead of vice versa. We'll outlive and outlast them, largely because it's a desert and they're certainly not going to be able to drink out of the Dead Sea. And to prepare for that, plan for that, they dug massive cisterns at the top of this mountain plateau and filled it with water when they could. It's almost like they had an Olympic-sized swimming pool up top so that the Roman army down below would have nothing for them. But imagine if that was a leaky cistern. And you were banking on it, but it just couldn't keep its promise. It couldn't hold the water. And when you went to draw from it, there was nothing for it to give you. On my mission, uh, there were two missionaries that served in the same branch as us that had been teaching an investigator that, that, was, that had decided to be baptized. And he was going to get baptized on a certain Sunday. But it was in the middle of a drought in Puerto Rico, which made no sense because it rains like every day. Uh, but I guess infrastructure problems. And there, there was no, they only had running water every other day. And there wasn't going to be running water on the Sunday of that baptism. So, wise missionaries, they went on Saturday and filled up the font. Perfect, it's ready, it's good. And then on Sunday, when it was time for the baptism to begin, they went to look at the font and it was bone dry. It was a broken cistern because the, the rubber stopper didn't, it had a leak and, and the water drained out through that broken plug and there was nothing. We had to be incredibly creative to find enough water elsewhere to fill the font just deep enough to baptize this brother by immersion. It was not your picture-perfect baptism, but it, he was immersed, okay, and it counted. 
the, but to me, that's the, that's the problem of a broken cistern. Nobody would have chosen that if running water were an option. And that's what the Lord is getting at. I am the fountain of living water and you've forsaken me. And then to go to some other source that can provide you nothing. That's what he said earlier. It, it cannot profit you. This is a, a leaky plug. This is a broken cistern. Why would you trust in, in those kinds of things? False gods. He even goes on and shifts the metaphor somewhat towards slavery. And, say, and he says, you've put the chains upon yourself. And it explains in verse 17, Hast thou not procured this unto thyself, in that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, when he led thee by the way? You rejected the God of Israel. Instead, you turned to the Egyptians as allies. You turned to the Assyrians as allies, even though they were the enemy on its way. What are you going to do now as Babylon is bearing down on you? You have to trust in me, not in the arm of flesh, because there's no flesh on that arm. It's a leaky cistern. He says in verse 19, Thine own wickedness shall correct thee. Thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. Interesting the way he phrases that. Your own wickedness will correct you. You wouldn't let me correct you the soft way, crying repentance, asking you to change, warning you of consequence. No, the consequences had to come and introduce themselves directly. You wouldn't take the more gentle approach. And so you pay tuition at the school of hard knocks and you will be punished by your sins without me having to punish you for them. Prepare for this. In verse 20, for of old time, I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands. I've freed you. I got you out of Egypt. I, free, I, I preserved you against the Assyrians. I have saved and delivered you time after time. But thou sayest, well, I will not transgress, when upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest, playing the harlot, yet I planted thee a noble vine, wholly a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? Oh, there's some powerful imagery in that verse. Notice, walk your way through it. You said, I won't transgress. Oh, really? How many times have you given me those fair promises I'll be different this time. You cheated on me and left, but I let you back in and you swore you'd never do it again. You'd never succumb to the same old sin. But you did. In fact, you went to every high hill and under every green tree. That's Baal and Asherah worship. But think about it in these terms. If you went to every high hill, that's a counterfeit mountain of the Lord. You cheated on the temple. The every green tree, that's a counterfeit tree of life. And you cheated on that too. You fell for fakes. Counterfeits each time. And you wandered around playing the harlot, looking for other lovers when your true husband was home waiting for you to return. No, I planted you a noble vine, a right seed. This is the allegory of the olive tree all over again good olive trees. At least I planted you in perfect, in, in the best possible soil, promised land. Why did you bring forth bad fruit? No wonder I had to 
scatter you and graft in other things and make as many changes as need be in hopes that it would wake you up to the realities of your own wickedness. You've got to change here. You turned in, I love this phrase, into a degenerate plant of a strange vine. How could things turn out this way after all that I've done for you? He says in verse 22, For though thou wash thyself with nitre and take thee much soap, Yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith the Lord God. Compare that to Isaiah's words. Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. I, I don't care if your sins are scarlet. If they're red like crimson, they can be as white as snow if they're washed in the blood of the Lamb. But that's the only thing that will wash them out. Here, try nitre, try soap. Try the best possible things to, to, to scrub out the sin. No, the stain remains. Nothing you do can change you. But if you come unto God, the change can come. Your only hope is repentance here. Jeremiah goes on with a few more metaphors. He describes them as the people as swift camels and wild donkeys wandering away from their masters in search of things to satisfy themselves. You're wandering beasts uh, and not wanting to bear the burdens that God is placing upon you. He then counsels them in verse 25, Withhold thy foot from being unshod, and thy throat from thirst. So don't fall prey to those who are offering easier ways. Oh, take your shoes off, take a drink, rest a while, put your feet up, all is well. No, don't do that. But thou sayest, there is no hope. No, for I have loved strangers, and after them will I go. Interesting ending. I'm trying to reassure you, uh, don't fall for the fa fair and false promises of other people. Come home. We'll change. It'll take some work. There's going to be some marriage counseling we're going to have to go through and, and work our way through. But, but it will, it'll be worth it. And, but you said there's no hope. Sorry. I've tried. I just can't get over my wickedness. I, I can't change. Well, not on your own, but you can with me. I, no, there's no hope. I have loved strangers. I've already cheated on you. I'm guilty of covenant infidelity. And so I might as well just stay, stay that way. Talk about giving up on yourself and giving up on a marriage partner that, has, that refuses to give up on you. Just change. In verse 27, he says, They say to a stock, thou art my father, and to a stone thou hast brought me forth. <laughs> no, stocks and stones? False, again, idolatry, graven images. That's not your father. That's not your mother. You have celestial parents. You are children of God. And if you trust in that, then what is the draw? What's the pull toward the wickedness of the world? They have turned their back unto me, and not their face, God says. But in a time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. You catch that one? You turn away from me when times are good, but as soon as they're bad, you, you come rushing back with your tail between your legs. Please save us. You've just turned God into your cosmic butler or your 911 dispatch. Please come and rescue me. I'm desperate. But is that the only reason you come back home? Desperate? Oh, surely if you have all of these false gods and false prophets and false lovers, you have the people you've been committing adultery with. Why not turn to them? Surely they can bail you out of this, right? That's what he says in the next verse. 
But where are thy gods that thou hast made thee? Let them arise, if they can save thee in the time of thy trouble. For according to the number of thy cities are thy gods, O Judah. Wherefore will ye plead with me? Ye all have transgressed against me, saith the Lord. As many cities are out there. That's how many gods there are. Uh, in some ways, this reminds me of the days of the reigns of the judges. When there is no king in Israel, and everybody does according to the, whatever is right in their own eyes. Talk about moral relativism. And everybody just doing their own thing. Well, is that thing working out for you? Especially in hard times? I have warned people of that. Uh, one student in particular that was planning on a sabbatical from church. And I said, okay, if you're planning on leaving to see what life is like, just make sure that your experiment includes both hard days as well as good ones. Because in your good times, you might not even miss God. At least you might not notice it. And you might not miss a loving community of saints that will do just about anything for you simply because of their covenants of consecration. So make sure that you include some rough times so that your experiment is fair at least. And we'll see when days are dark if then you miss the light of the world. That seems to be the issue going on here. In verse 30 he says, In vain have I smitten your children. They received no correction. Your own sword hath devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. You ever heard the word incorrigible? Well, corregir in Spanish means to correct, and incorrigible comes from the same Latin root. It means uncorrectable. You, you can't be fixed. You won't be coached. You're unteachable. So in vain have I smitten your children. And I wasn't smiting them out of my own, to, to vent my own frustration. No, I just hoped that the consequences of sin would wake you up to the need for repentance. But not even that worked. The, you'd think you would have been warned by the scattering of Israel. Are you going to have to face Babylonian captivity yourself? Evidently so. In verse 32, he then goes back to the marriage metaphor and paints a powerful picture here. Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number lost track of how many times you've abandoned me, despite the fact that we were married. Remember, this is the same idea, the same analogy he used before. Don't you remember when we got engaged and how amazing that was? The love we shared in that courtship and, and honeymoon phase. I still love you as much now as I did then. Or here, can you forget your ornaments or your bridal attire? I love the metaphor. Think about, especially you wives out there, think about what you looked like on your wedding day. Looking in the mirror and I'm the princess today in my own Disney movie. I'm the, the, the queen for a day and my husband, he's going to be amazed when he sees me walk out for wedding pictures. You probably remember every detail and what your hair was like and your makeup and and seeing those pictures and that beautiful wedding gown. I certainly remember all of that from a husband's perspective. Just seeing my wife walk out there in the San Diego temple and blown away by her beauty. She was my wife. And I still feel that way. And that's what God is saying. I still feel that way. Why don't you? Go look at some old wedding pictures, will you? And, and remember the bride in her attire. 
And then he says this in the next line. This is the opposite. Why trimmest thou thy way to seek love? Therefore hast thou also taught the wicked ones thy ways. Now that translation, again, so often King James, I mean, this is 17th century uh, primness and properness. And I just don't want to be too, uh, too graphic in my translation. Well, more modern translations go straight back to the Hebrew and pull back some of the dirt and grime that prophets sometimes couch their words in. And this is one of those occasions. The New Living Translation puts that last line this way. How you plot and scheme to win your lovers. Even an experienced prostitute could learn from you. Yikes. You see why we need the marriage counseling? You're at the point where you are just trying to... Even when we're together, you're thinking of times apart. You're trying to figure out, how can I win other lovers? How can I go back into my covenant infidelity? Even experienced prostitutes could learn a trick or two from you. This, this is a hurt husband. This is one who's been cheated on more times than he can name. And yet he still holds out hope. In 34, he says, Also in thy skirts is found the blood of the souls of the poor innocents. I have not found it by secret search, but upon all these. In other words, I didn't have to search. I didn't have to go hire a, a private eye to go take pictures of you when you're off leaving and, and going with someone else. No, you're, it's, you were caught red-handed. This blood is on your skirts, the souls of the poor innocents. And yet, the next verse Thou sayest, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me? No, that's not the case. You are not innocent. And so there's no just turning away evil unless there's repentance. Behold, he concludes, I will plead with thee because thou sayest I have not sinned. No wonder you're not repenting if you don't think you've sinned. That's the real problem here. This era of moral relativism and priests and false priests and false prophets and false princes who are telling you people that your falsehood isn't false at all, that wrong is right and right is wrong and do what you want and eat, drink, and to be merry and there is no law or no consequence. No wonder you claim innocence. You say you haven't sinned. No, these actions are not justifiable and you have to repent. So chapter 3 continues where, I, where Jeremiah left off in chapter 2. More talk of idolatry as adultery. More warnings against covenant infidelity. He says in verse 1, They say, if a man put away his wife, and she go from him and become another man's, shall he return unto her again? The answer to that rhetorical question is a loud no. No, if you get cheated on, no, that, that's cause for divorce. And so you leave, and you don't let her back. At least that's what people would do, but that's not what God is doing. He asks, again, shall not that land be greatly polluted? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again to me, saith the Lord. So I'm not going to do what I justifiably could. I'm not just going to put you out. In some ways, this is Joseph when he finds out that Mary is pregnant before they are married. And... A just man, I obviously can't marry you myself, but I'll put you away privily so that it's not such a, a public shaming. In this case, the Lord is willing to do the same. In fact, he's willing to do more than that. If you'll just 
stop what you're doing and come back, I will forgive you. In verse 2, he talks about her laying down with false gods, describes her as sitting on a street corner waiting for a customer to come by, uses the word whoredoms there. In verse 3, he says, Thou hast a whore's forehead that refuses to be ashamed. What's, what's a whore's forehead? The NIV describes it, You have the brazen look of a prostitute. You refuse to blush with shame. So again, there's this sense of being totally unrepentant. I haven't done anything wrong. I've got nothing to blush about. Verse 6, it speaks of backsliding Israel, having played the harlot. And then in verse 7, I said after she had done all these things, Turn thou unto me. I'll still take you back if you do. But she returned not. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. That powerful description, because now he's involving both sisters here. He's expanding the, the metaphor, the personification. That now Israel and Judah, Israel the northern kingdom, Judah the southern kingdom, remember they split in the days of Rehoboam and Jeroboam? But you're still sisters. You're still princesses under the same king and queen. You're the house of Israel together. But these sisters both turned against their husbands. Up north, you were backsliding Israel, committing adultery, and you got destroyed by the Assyrians. And then in the south, your treacherous sister Judah, you're playing the prostitute. It's bad enough that your married sister cheated on her husband. Now you're, you're acting like a prostitute just looking anywhere you can and going against a Lord who loves you. Is Judah in the south, I wish you would look at your older sister and see her as a cautionary tale. Instead, you look up to her as some kind of example worth following. Well, you're going to follow in her footsteps of consequence. And as she was destroyed by the Assyrians, so will you be destroyed by the Babylonians. Just wait and see. He says in verse 9 and 10, it came to pass through the lightness of her whoredom. In other words, you didn't take your immorality seriously. It's just a light thing. It's no big deal. Everybody's doing it. But she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with stocks. There's those graven images that they claimed to be their father and mother. No. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah hath not turned unto me with her whole heart, but feignedly, saith the Lord. This is false contrition. This is what Mormon described as the sorrow of the damned instead of godly sorrow. No broken heart and contrite spirit. You just don't want to be punished. Well, it's still not late it's, not, it's still not too late for you, Judah. In fact, it's not even too late for your sister Israel, if they'll just change. Look at 12 and 13. Go and proclaim these words toward the north, the northern kingdom, and say, Return, thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you. And here's why. For I am merciful, saith the Lord, and I will not keep anger forever. But this is what I ask. Only acknowledge thine iniquity. Admit that what you did was wrong, that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree, and ye have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. 
That's all I ask. Admit you're wrong. I'll accept your weakness as long as it, it's not covered up by self-justification. I'm, I'm okay with... A, I'm okay with what you've done if you just acknowledge that what you did was wrong. Instead of rationalizing and relativizing sin, just repent of it. Admit that what you did was wrong. That's what confession is. Confession is an admittance of weakness, but also a, a confirmation that I didn't want to do that. I still honor the law, even though I broke it. The, the worst is when we start turning against the law so we can justify ourselves, because then there's really no hope and change. And that's the problem with Israel and Judah at this time. So, what does he say in verse 14 and 15? Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you. And I refuse to sign the divorce papers, even though you've served them. I'm, I'm not leaving this relationship. Instead, what will I do if you turn? I will take you, one of a city, and two of a family. And I will bring you to Zion. I know one from the city and two from the family doesn't sound like much, but I'll take everyone who will listen, even if you seem to be the only one. Interesting that there be, would be more in the family than in the city. But that suggests the kinds of relationships that can be redemptive, where if you can be the one who holds out faithful to the end, then chances are you won't come home alone. You will bring family members with you. But keep reading, he says, I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. Remember all those other P words that he's against, the princes and the prophets and the priests and the people? Well, we'll see that he's against some of the pastors as well. A shepherd is a pastor. There are false shepherds, just like there are false prophets and false priests. But here, God is promising them true shepherds, good shepherds, good pastors, after his own heart. Remember, that was the phrase that was used to describe David as a boy, that he had a heart like the Lord's. Well, go figure. He was a shepherd after the image of the good shepherd. And here the Lord promises, the day will come where you will have shepherds like me, doing all they can. Jeremiah is one of them. Isaiah was one of them. We have met so many of those good under-shepherds throughout our study of the Old Testament. But to have a day where we are blessed with that kind of leadership, as we listen to prophets and apostles today, I am grateful for pastors according to the heart of God. And they do feed me with knowledge and with understanding the very things I need to know that I can come home despite my sins. In verse 16, he says, It shall come to pass when ye be multiplied and increased in the land. In those days, saith the Lord. And in those days is often code language for the last days. When it's go time and the Father's work is recommencing. Restoration is repla replacing apostasy. And gathering is supplanting scattering. In that day, here's the Lord's promise. They shall say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Neither shall it come to mind. Neither shall they remember it. Neither shall they visit it. Neither shall that be done anymore. Now that's confusing because it seems like, well, isn't the ark of the covenant a good thing? How come nobody's talking about it? Well, the ark is a good thing. But when it replaces the great thing, then good is a problem. When the ark replaces the covenant, then it's a problem. Remember we studied this back in Eli and Samuel's day? 
when the Israelites thought, hey, we got the Ark of the Covenant, so that's the, the presence of God. We'll take it into battle and no one can stand against us. That's where Raiders of the Lost Ark gets its plot from. But they missed the boat. That, yeah, you've got the Ark, but if you're not keeping the covenant, then no, God is not sitting on that throne. And sure enough, they lost to the Philistines. The, the issue here is symbol compared to what the symbol represents. Think about how often in Isaiah last time we saw God rejecting worship. And not that he's denying the need for worship or for sacrifice. Rather, if you're missing the ends because you're simply caught up in the means, then the means got to go. This is like King Hezekiah breaking the brazen serpent because people were starting to look at it instead of look through it to see what it represents. To look and live by looking at God. And I hope that this is making sense because this passage, what I love about it is the day will come. In those days, in the last days, nobody's going to be thinking about the ark because they're only thinking about the covenant that they're keeping. This is like we saw in Isaiah and we'll see in the book of Revelation that in the celestial city, no need for sun, moon, stars. They've all been eclipsed by the light of the world. Or even the fact that there won't be temples in the celestial city. Like, what? We're dotting the earth with them. Every time President Nelson gets up, he seems to announce 15 or 20 more. Well, those are a means to a greater end. But when the earth itself receives its paradisical glory, when this, it becomes the celestial kingdom, it's its own temple. We don't need little outposts of holiness. The whole, the whole world is holiness to the Lord. This is a beautiful prophecy to me. And the thought of, even the way he says it at the end, the, they shall not visit it. Other translations say they won't even miss it. Or they will not be done. That will not be done anymore. Other translations say they won't make another one. It's like we don't need, the Ark of the Covenant served its purpose. It prepared us for the covenant maker. Uh, and that's God himself. And we're with him. So we don't need any of those earlier memories or those earlier symbols. We have something so much better. In verse 18, here's another, in those days. And in those days, the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given for an inheritance unto your fathers. There's the gathering of Israel for you. There's a reunited kingdom of Israel. These are both sisters. They've cleaned up their acts. Uh, Israel is no longer backsliding and Judah is no longer treacherous. They have repented of their sins and been allowed to come home and they come home together. We'll see a similar prophecy in Ezekiel in a couple of weeks about sticks becoming one in the hand. And yes, that refers to Bible and Book of Mormon, but it also refers to Northern Kingdom and Southern Kingdom coming together as one again. That is part of this restoration. But how are we ever going to get there? Look at verse 19. But I said, how shall I put thee among the children and give thee a pleasant land, a goodly heritage of the host of nations? And I said, thou shalt call me my father and shalt not turn away from me. It's really that simple. That's all that it takes. Call me father and then act like my child. How it's, This is just family relationships. This is what we do. We forgive each other. We work things out. 
we, we're, we're part of the same family and there's nowhere else to go, okay? And I think if we understand that, uh, if we ever feel forsaken or forgotten, if we feel like we've done too much or gone too far and cut ourselves off from God, what it boils down to is something as simple as that. Call God Father. And he won't turn away. He can't. He loves his children too much. And if we will simply change and live up to that inheritance, then the inheritance will be ours. We're part of the family. He invites them again in verse 22. Return ye backsliding children, both of you sisters, and I will heal your backslidings. With an invitation and a promise like that, with a father with so much paternal pity and mercy and kindness and forgiving love, how can we not then respond with this phrase? Behold, we come unto thee, for thou art the Lord our God. I'm sorry for everything I did during my years of wandering. This is the prodigal son coming home. Once the thought crossed his mind, maybe I can go back. Babylon has left me with nothing. If I go home, I know I've burned all those bridges, but my father was kind to his servants. Maybe he'll at least let me be one of them. And he far underestimates the kindness of his father who comes rushing out to meet him and won't even let him finish his sentence about, can I be a servant? He said, you, you are my son. You always have been, you always will be, and you're home, and I'm here to heal you. I'm here to help you. That is so beautiful. It's that kind of faith in the character of God that underwrites every call to repentance on the part of a prophet. I'm telling you to repent because I know you must. There's justice speaking. But I know you can, and that's mercy speaking. And I know you can because I know the mercy of God. And so with that ending of chapter 3, Jeremiah turns to chapter 4 and calls the people to repent. So you can step into that mercy. He says in verse 1, If thou wilt return, O Israel, saith the Lord, return unto me, and if thou wilt put away thine abominations out of my sight, then shalt thou not remove. So just return. That means repent. Stop. Well, put the abominations out of my sight. Imagine, again, we're still sticking with the same marriage metaphor and the same analogy of adultery, covenant infidelity. Put away the abominations before my sight. Imagine if your spouse cheats on you and all they ever post on social media are pictures of them out having fun with the person they're not married to, that they are reveling in their iniquity, in their infidelity. That would be a hard thing to have. You get, you, it dredges up and brings back these painful memories every time you look and see those old pictures. Israel, if you'll just put those abominations out of my sight, then I will be able to forgive and forget. I, the Lord, will remember your sins no more. Just eliminate those things. In verse 3, For thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, and take away the foreskins of your heart, ye men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my fury come forth like fire, and burn that none can quench it, because of the evil of your doings. Again, here Jeremiah is shifting his, his symbolism. 
he keeps coming back to the marriage metaphor. It's the best one. It's the one that's most kind of gut-wrenching. But he shifts it up just in case someone needs a different kind of analogy. Here he uses two different ones. One is about soil. Think about the parable of the sower, in fact. I wonder if Jesus, in teaching that parable, had a little bit of Jeremiah 4 on the mind. Because if it's wayside soil, and it's so packed down, nothing's ever going to be able to, <laughs> no seed will be able to penetrate the surface. If it's stony ground, there's just not enough, enough depth of earth. If it's among the thorns, then it's going to get choked out. Their only hope is good ground. But what I love based on Jeremiah here is any ground can be good if you work with it. Even the wayside just needs to be tilled. It needs to be plowed up. And that's what he's saying here. Break up your fallow ground. Wasn't Jeremiah told at the very beginning, you're here to dig up and root out and break down hard things like, like bad soil? Or the stony ground, gather out the rocks. And there's soil in which plants can grow. Among the thorns, just do some weeding. And that's what he says there. So not among thorns. Pull out the, the thorns first and you've got a good plot of ground. I mean, it was, it was growing weeds. <laughs> Something can grow there. It's amazing that this is all across the spectrum and God has ways of pushing every kind of soil towards the side of good ground. And Jeremiah is the one that's supposed to be tilling and overturning things. Then the second analogy, right in the same breath, circumcise your heart. Circumcision has been the token of the covenant ever since the days of Abraham. And I imagine that these Jewish boys are still being circumcised on the eighth day. That's become tradition. But if that's all it is, and instead of being a token of the covenant, it's just a token nod to the covenant that we're not actually going to keep, then it's become a problem. And honestly, it was never... What, was, what, was, what God was intending for you to circumcise was your heart all along. It's just hard to get to the inward, and so often it is the outward that, that is used. That's what sacrifice was for. Okay? That's what so many of these rituals are all about. But if we use the language of Isaiah, that where there's problems with the eye and the ear and the heart, if the heart has waxed fat to the point that God cannot reach his finger into it and, and carve upon the fleshy tables, then, that, then the foreskin of the heart, as Jeremiah describes it, must be cut away so God has access to our deepest feelings. Jeremiah keeps trying to help the people to see the urgency of his call to repent because this enemy is on the way. And so he says in verse 14, O Jerusalem, wash thine heart from wickedness, that thou mayest be saved. How long shall thy vain thoughts lodge within thee? Speaking of rooting things out, those have to go. Whatever vain thoughts, whatever thoughts that it's too late or there's no hope or it's not a big deal, no, those, ha those are all vain. That's speaking to your own pride instead of submitting to your humility. Those are vain in terms of serving no purpose. That's a, an empty, that's a broken cistern right there. Turn to the fountain of living water, and it's that living water. Forget the soap, forget the nitre. It's only that that will cleanse you and wash you. Jeremiah is so devastated by what he sees coming in the distance. These Jeremiads that he's, that he's sharing with the people, that he says this in verse 19 through 21. My bowels, my bowels. 
I am pained at my very heart. My heart maketh a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace. Because thou hast heard, O my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Destruction upon destruction is cried, for the whole land is spoiled. Suddenly are my tents spoiled, and my curtains in a moment. How long shall I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? And yet no one respond to it. Remember, he's the watchman on the tower. He is the tower. He's, he is the wall. And he sees off in the distance, as every good watchman does, the consequences of the sins of the people. In this case, he's, he's seen the standard there, the enemy banner waving in the breeze. He's heard the trumpet blast, and he's trying to sound the alarm to rally the troops. Is it working? It seems no, and so no wonder his heart is pained and his bowels, his bowels. As a clueless 19-year-old missionary, I remember looking at that verse on occasion and just and quoting it uh, with other missionaries when we'd eaten something strange out on the streets. And it literally, literally was a my bowels, my bowels kind of a moment. Uh, we got to stop whatever we're doing. No, no tracting now. We got to find a spot uh, to go. And talk about misunderstanding the feelings behind this passage in Jeremiah's case. Remember, bowels... I mean, here he mentions the heart, pained at the very heart, but more commonly for Hebrews, it's the bowels that are the center of emotion. We've talked about a gut feeling. Well, that's exactly what he's got, and it's a devastating one. Where I am sick to my stomach to think about what people are doing against the Lord their God. I'm sick to my stomach to think what's going to happen to you if you don't repent, and I'm hearing the alarm sounds already. Please, the trumpet is giving a clear sound. Listen to it. Rally the troops. In verse 22, he says, For my people is foolish. They have not known me. They are sottish, which means stupid or senseless or foolish. They are sottish children, and they have none understanding. Well, they have some. They are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. I hope that that verse doesn't apply to us. But do we sometimes act like senseless children? Uh, do we only exercise wisdom in trying to figure out ways to get through loopholes and break commandments without getting caught? Are we so ignorant when it comes to doing what's right? That's what Jeremiah is up against. Jeremiah then sees what's coming and tries to help the people understand it. In verse 23, I beheld the earth... And lo, it was without form and void, and the heavens, and they had no light. Does the phrase without form and void ring any bells for you? It should. That's the creation account, at least before the work of God really began. What Jeremiah is describing here is a reversal of creation. It's a return to the chaos and darkness before God spake and said, let there be light. Do you really want to go back to those days? Do you want to reverse things? Because that's what your wickedness is bringing on. Another vision he sees. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens were fled. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of the Lord and by his fierce anger. Four times in quick succession, I beheld, and lo, I beheld, and lo. Do you understand what he's getting at? 
oh, this is this crescendo of consequence, and I'm seeing it, and behold, you better see it too. We are moving in the wrong direction, and we have to change. In verse 30, he says, when thou art spoiled, what wilt thou do? I'm seeing the consequences. Well, what will your consequences be? What are you going to do there? Who are you going to turn to? And then interesting description of what they might come to. Though thou clothest thyself with crimson. Okay, you're, you're dressing yourself in the most vibrant, dynamic, oh, eye-appealing color you can. Though thou deckest thyself with ornaments of gold. So now you've put on the most beautiful jewelry you can find. Though thou rentest thy face with painting. The interesting description of putting your makeup on. To rend your face with painting. You're trying to look as, as appealing, as attractive as you possibly can. But here's the problem. In vain shalt thou make thyself fair. Thy lovers will despise thee. They will seek thy life. We've seen repeatedly, not only from Jeremiah, but from Isaiah and others before, playing the prostitute, trying to dress themselves in such a way that, oh, I've rejected my own husband, but I'm going to make the rounds and hope I can find lesser lovers. And yet, even they despise you now. This is like the daughters of, of Zion being turned inside out like Isaiah showed them. And no well-said hair, it's baldness. Even your former partners can see through that. You're no, you, are, you are not beautiful in the eyes of the world anymore. Then why is the world still beautiful in your eyes? We've got to come to our senses and overcome this. The imagery then shifts from a woman seeking other men to a mother giving birth. And Jeremiah says in verse 31, for I have heard a voice as of a woman in travail. So she's in labor. You can hear this pain. The anguish as of her that bringeth forth her first child. And the first child is usually the longest labor. What is he hearing? The voice of the daughter of Zion that bewaileth herself, that spreadeth her hands and says, Woe is me now, for my soul is wearied because of murderers. Now, by shifting the metaphor from marriage to childbirth, remember last week we saw this, we got some help from the book of James as well, that we talked about cockatrice eggs and are they hatching? We talked about temptation conceiving. And when temptation has conceived, what happens at birth? Sin appears. And what happens when sin is allowed to grow up? Well, it ends in spiritual death. Well, what's happening here, the woman is in travail. It's too late to make any changes now. You should, should have thought of that before conception. But if you are playing the harlot, what did you think was going to happen? There will be a time to pay the piper, and it's coming due. And you are now giving birth to your own consequences. I warned you that they would be there to teach you. Well, here comes the lesson. Jeremiah 5, he clarifies what that lesson is, what consequences will come. He says in verse 1, Run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, and see now, and know, and seek in the broad places thereof. If you can find a man, if there be any that executeth judgment, that seeketh the truth, and I will pardon it. 
Think about the difference back in, in Abraham's day when God warned him of the imminent destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah because of similar sins. But I, Abraham pushes back and intercedes and suggests, what if I can find 50 righteous? You wouldn't destroy everyone, including them, would you? Well, 50 is probably too much to ask for. How about 45? Do I hear 40? 35? 30? 25? 20? Going once, going twice? He gets it down to 10, remember? But even that was too many. Well, talk about scraping the bottom of the barrel. Here, Jeremiah is saying, could you even find a single one? Go around, search everywhere you can, and find a man, singular, that executes judgment and seeks the truth. And if you can do that, I'll pardon it. Well, Jeremiah himself was one of those men. Lehi and Nephi were, but they're leaving. Is there enough leaven to leaven the lump? Or have things gotten to the point where people aren't going to change? No wonder we need to make a difference and shine as lights in the world. Even those who seem righteous, if you look at verse 2, though they say the Lord liveth, surely they swear falsely. And we saw that with Isaiah's warnings as well. Oh, they stay upon the Holy One of Israel. They claim to be, I'm an inhabitant of Jerusalem, so I'm the good guy here. No, it's hypocrisy. It's assuming that membership alone is sufficient when, no, holiness is what is required. So, verse 3, O Lord, are not thine eyes upon the truth? Thou hast stricken them, but they have not grieved. So they're totally unrepentant. Thou hast consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. There's that incorrigible, like we saw earlier. They have made their faces harder than a rock. They have refused to return. That's stubbornness. Unteachable, uncoachable, incorrigible, uncorrectable. No discipline, no humility, no willingness to change. Now let's double down on our evil instead. Well, maybe that's just the, the foolish people, though, right? Those sottish children. Surely that's not everybody. Surely there's more than one out there I could find. Let's look elsewhere. So he says in 4 and 5, Therefore I said, surely these are poor. They are foolish, for they know not the way of the Lord, nor the judgment of their God. But that's just those type. They don't know any better. Let's find other people. I will get me unto the great men, and will speak unto them. For they have known the way of the Lord, and the judgment of their God. There's the type we could find some hope in. But how does the verse end? But these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. Even the righteous, the formerly righteous, that is, have fallen away, feeling trapped, perhaps, underneath a yoke that they don't want to bear anymore, in bonds and unable to, to live, live in to all the other oh, pleasures that the rest of Judah is succumbing to. So what does Jeremiah do? He warns them. These will be the consequences of your sins. He describes Babylon like a lion first, and then as a wolf, and finally as a leopard. Which one are you most afraid of? It doesn't matter. I just hope one of these analogies will scare you into a recognition of your sins. Again, he calls them out for their covenant infidelity, and says in verse 7, How shall I pardon thee for this? My children have forsaken me, and sworn by them that are no gods. When I had fed them to the full, they then committed adultery. I provided for them, and this is the thanks I get. They, they take the energy that, I've given, that the food has given them, and they run away and find other people. They assembled themselves by troops in the harlots' houses. 
Other translations are a little more bold. They thronged to the houses of prostitutes. They lined up at the brothel. And then, as, about as graphic as you can get, they were as fed horses in the morning. Every one neighed after his neighbor's wife. Now think about that last one. Other translations even call, describe them as lusty stallions. And think about the details. They are fed horses in the morning. Even on an animalistic level, your most base nature. What are the most basic physical appetites and physical needs? Well, you got to eat. Well, you already have. You're a fed horse. You got to sleep. Well, you just got up. It's in the morning. Oh, well, those physical appetites have been met. What's the next physical appetite I want to go satisfy? What lust of the flesh is next? And that's exactly what's happening here. God has met your basic needs. And yet, what you think you need, what you are lusting after, and turning to false gods to, to satisfy, turning to false standards or a lack thereof, you are neighing after your neighbor's wife. This is so serious. And so, verse 14, Wherefore thus saith the Lord God of hosts, Because ye speak this word, behold, I will make my words in thy mouth fire, and this people would, and it shall devour them. Keep that in mind, because in a coming chapter, you will see that fire burning within Jeremiah. No matter how much others, or even he, tries to put it out. No, this is fire in the bones, and we'll see that soon. But here it is kindled. The wrath of God, the, the consequences of sin. His words will be fire, the people will be wood. And once those two come together, something's going to burn. Now fire can cleanse, it can purify, if you're ready for it. Otherwise it consumes and destroys and it'll be up to the people that listen to Jeremiah, or better said, refuse to listen to him, to decide what will come of their wood. Well, he keeps warning them of this destruction by a foreign invader, Babylon. But he also promises them this in verse 18. Nevertheless, in those days, saith the Lord, I will not make a full end with you. This is Sheer Yashub, Isaiah's boy. The personification, the personal promise that a remnant shall return. Yes, you will be destroyed by the Babylonians, but I won't make a full end. There will be enough to come back to rebuild. Enough to remain behind to gather. But then the pendulum swings back. He's been on wickedness. He comes to a verse of righteousness, or at least of hope and of mercy, and then comes back to their reality describes their wickedness and says in verse 25, your iniquities have turned away these things and your sins have withholden good things from you. I love that phrase, your sins have withholden good things. President Packer is the one that always says that we're more often punished by our sins than for them. God doesn't have to heap something else on top and punish. He can simply stop, step away. And as a result, there go all the blessings that usually flow so freely from him. No, our sins have kept him at arm's length. And he can't reach us. We won't let him. So in verse 30, a wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. And wonderful here means shocking, appalling. So this is a horrifying thing. And here's, here's what it is. The prophets 
prophesy falsely. The priests bear rule by their means. How's that for priest craft? And you pay me and I'm, I'm wealthy and I'm popular and I'm powerful. So of course I can bear rule. And then a third P, my people love to have it so. And what will ye do in the end thereof? No wonder Jeremiah is so appalled, shocked. He's wondering about what his eyes behold. False prophets prophesying falsely. False priests so engaged in priestcraft. But the people want it that way? How do you explain that? Well, with Samuel the Lamanite's help, well, they're telling the people what they want to hear. So, of course, they're supporting them. With Nehor's help, uh, of course, they're popular. They're telling the people that what you're doing isn't wrong. With Paul's help, well, they're getting their itching ears scratched and are being told just what they want to hear. So, of course, the people love to have it so. Who wants to hear hard sayings? Who wants to be told that they're doing something wrong and being called to repentance? Oh, not, not anyone there in Judah. But are, are we sensitive enough? Or will we be like Nephi said of Laman and Lemuel, the truth hurts. The wicked take the truth to be hard, for it cutteth them to the very center. Will it prick our conscience? Or are we past feeling? Well, Jeremiah 6 suggests that the people were past feeling, and they simply refused to repent. Verse 2, he says, I have likened the daughter of Zion to a comely and delicate woman. That's the symbol I keep coming back to. But verse 7, as a fountain casteth out her waters, so she casteth out her wickedness. Violence and spoil is heard in her. Before me continually is grief and wounds. That's the exact opposite of what it was supposed to be. Earlier he talked about this fountain of living waters that they rejected in favor of a broken cistern. Next, in two weeks when we meet Ezekiel, we will see a vision of the temple and a fountain of living water emerging from its foundation and flowing east until it heals everything in its place, including the waters of the Dead Sea. Compare that to this. Oh, it's a fountain, all right. It's casting out her waters, but this is a fountain of filthy water. This is like Lehi's dream. Something to distract you from the tree of life. Something to sweep you downstream toward the great and abominable church, or in that case, the great and spacious building. This doesn't bring healing along its banks. It brings nothing but grief and wounds. And Jeremiah sadly feels powerless to make any difference about it because no one's listening to him. In verse 10, to whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ear is uncircumcised, just like their hearts were a few verses ago. They cannot hearken. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They take it personally or they don't take it personally enough. It's either, ah, no big deal, or it's so reproachful. How could you, how dare you try to shame me? No, they have no delight in it. No delight in anything that I say. Therefore, I am full of the fury of the Lord. I am weary with holding in. Sound like the fire kindling, growing within him? I will pour it out upon the children abroad and upon the assembly of young men together. For even the husband with the wife shall be taken, the aged with him that is full of days. I just can't keep it in. I have to cry repentance. I have to warn people of the consequences of their sin, even if they won't listen. 
Somehow I, I have to help them here. So in 16, this is what he says. Thus saith the Lord, stand ye in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. That is this beautiful turn to the past, back to our days of dating and engagement, the early days of carrying you across the threshold into your promised land. Walk in that path, the old covenant. But, th but their response? We will not walk therein. Jeremiah's response? I also set watchmen over you, saying, hearken to the sound of the trumpet. Their response? But they said, we will not hearken. This is a, a bickering old couple there at, at uh, marriage therapy. Well, one side is bickering. The, the Lord keeps responding, I'm going to try again. I'll invite you to come back and walk in the old path. No, I won't. Okay, will you at least listen to the trumpet, the warning sign? Nope, I don't want to hear that either. This is past feeling. This is refusing to change. And so verse 20, To what purpose cometh there to me incense from Sheba, and the sweet cane from a far country? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet unto me. There's another example of what we saw in Isaiah at the beginning, first chapter, and at the end, last chapter. The rejection and hopeful rehabilitation of worship. You're going through the motions, and if that is lulling you into a false sense of security, like, hey, we paid at the office, we checked off the sacrificial box, we're good, right? No. What purpose? That was the same question he asked through Isaiah. Why? Why are you doing it? If it's box checking, it's insufficient. Why are you bringing incense, sweet cane, burnt offerings, sacrifice, this is Israelite ritual worship, but sadly it's become merely ritualistic. There's nothing on the inside. So again, the Lord warns the people of destruction and says to Jeremiah in verse 27, I have set thee for a tower and a fortress among my people, that thou mayest know and try their way. We saw that back in the first chapter. You're not just the watchman on the tower, you are the tower. You are the iron pillar. You are the brazen wall. You're a fortress. And when I hear prophets and apostles speak, yes, I want to hunker down behind their message. I feel safe there. In chapter 7, Jeremiah goes on and builds on what he just said about outward sacrifice versus inner circumcision of heart. He says in verse 1, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house. So go right to the temple. And proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all ye of Judah, that enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Notice his audience. These are people that are coming to the temple, supposedly to worship the Lord. But what's the message? Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Well, it's one thing to come and visit, but to dwell here? To let my house become your house? No, long, no more a stranger or a guest, but as a child at home? You're not there yet, Israel. You're, this is the irony. You're coming to the temple, but you're not wor worthy of being here. 
You're making your outward sacrifices, but they're not affecting any inward change. So let's start with you hypocrites and call you to repentance. At least there's still some inkling down deep within you that this is a place you ought to be coming. But let's become worthy to do so. In verse 4, he says, trust not in lying words, saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. Maybe that's why they keep coming. Well, I mean, as long as we're card-carrying members, as long as we have this building, it's exactly what was happening in Eli's day with the tabernacle and with the Ark of the Covenant. But you remember, that was just an outward symbol. The inner reality was missing, and the same has happened here. And if you're using the outward as an excuse not to develop the inward, then the outward's got to go. Go smash the brazen serpent, Hezekiah. Come on over, Nebuchadnezzar. Destroy my house, because I haven't lived there in a long time. The people who come and visit don't really want to meet me there. So I've kind of left it to them. Next, verse 6. If ye oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, those three ultimately protected groups, and if you shed not innocent blood in this place, here at the temple, neither walk after other gods to your hurt, then will I cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. It's not too late to turn back the Babylonian onslaught. I, I got this, if you'll come back to me. But what they're guilty of, according to this verse, this expands it. We keep seeing this covenant infidelity. You are sinning against the first great commandment. Love God with all your heart, might, mind, and strength. No, you're loving all kinds of other things. But here also it points out they're sinning against the second great commandment, loving their neighbor as themselves. Their sin is both vertical and horizontal, and that's a problem. The same thing that was happening back in Sodom and Gomorrah. There were sins of immorality, but there were also sins of inhumanity. And that's what's happening in Judah at this time. Does that describe our day as well? Are we breaking both of the great commandments? Verse 8, Behold, ye trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will ye steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense unto Baal, and walk after other gods whom ye know not, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered to do all these abominations? <laughs> no, your membership does not offset your immorality. Just because you've made covenants doesn't mean you don't have to keep covenants. And just because you have a temple doesn't absolve you of the kinds of things that the temple is trying to cure you of. Now, we have cause to repent. I think I told you this when we talked about tithing back in the Doctrine and Covenants about it being fire insurance, that you won't be burned at his coming. And I had a seminary student that even as a teenager was wiser than her father because she saw through her dad's rationalizations. She knew that he was not living the gospel, but he kept reassuring her, oh, but I pay my tithing. And according to the Doctrine and Covenants, that's fire insurance. And so as long as I do that, I get... Now that's like paying off the mafia. <laughs> and God's not the mafia. That's thinking that you can make a token contribution in one area of life. And as a result, it will excuse everything else you do in other areas of your life. Oh no, Elder Maxwell once said that a few social commendables cannot compensate 
for moral inexcusables. I was at a time when there was some immorality in very high public places. And yet, the economy's good, so everything's all right, right? Well, be cautious about that. Those are tr that's trusting in lying words, as Jeremiah says here. I love what he says in 11 and 12. Is this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Again, I wonder if Jesus is thinking of Jeremiah when he cleanses the temple, since it's become a den of robbers, a den of thieves. And don't forget, a den is the place you go back to after a raid, if you're a thief, if you're a robber, because it's in the den that I'm safe from consequences. And so do you really, this is a fascinating passage, do you really think you can go out and commit all this immorality, this covenant infidelity, do damage to God as well as to your fellow man, and then come scurrying back to the temple thinking all is well, because at least I, I can, I'm here, I can pay my sacrifices. Oh no, that, it's become your den, your hideout, your lair, your place of security where you feel like it will shield you from the consequences of your crimes. It's not that. We gotta clear you out so that you don't, it, it, it will burst the bubble in that you use to try to convince yourself, oh, I'm safe here. And, and no, no, the piper will never come to get paid. So in 12, he says, behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord, but go ye now unto my place, which was in Shiloh where I set my name at the first and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. That's why I keep bringing up the days of Eli and the Ark of the Covenant. That's when the tabernacle was in Shiloh. Well, it's not there anymore. And where's any of that? I don't know. I don't know. Exactly. Let that be your cautionary tale. And just as there is no more tabernacle in Shiloh, soon enough there will be no more temple in Jerusalem. Because your wickedness today is of a similar kind as their wickedness then. And your false sense of security is just like theirs as well. In verse 13, he says, Now, because ye have done all these works, saith the Lord, and I spake unto you, rising up early and speaking, through my prophets, but ye heard not, and I called you, but ye answered not, Therefore will I do unto this house, which is called by my name, wherein ye trust, and unto the place which I gave to you and to your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, even the whole seed of Ephraim. God is trying to draw as many lessons from history as he can. And let them be cautionary tales. Look at Shiloh and realize that the same thing is going to happen to, your, to Jerusalem. No more tabernacle, no more temple. Look north and see your backsliding sister and understand that what the Assyrians did to the northern kingdom, the Babylonians will do to the southern kingdom. Remember on the, on the SAT or the ACT, those standardized exams where you'd get those syllogisms? This is to this as that is to that. In hopes that you could see, draw the parallels and make the connections. That was just a test of your intellectual intelligence. Well, how about your spiritual foresight? Israel is to Assyria as Jerusalem or Judah is to Babylon. Does that tell you anything? 
Eli is to the, t- the tabernacle as Jeremiah is to the temple. Shiloh equals Jerusalem. Are you drawing the parallels? Because if you can't, and if, or if you won't, then there's not a lot I can do for you. In verse 16, he says, Therefore pray not thou for this people, neither lift up cry nor prayer for them, neither make intercession to me, for I will not hear thee. After all, intercession is insufficient on the part of a prophet when there is no repentance on the part of the people. So keep talking to them. See if they'll change. But if they won't, there's no reason for you to talk to me and try to get me to turn away the consequences of their sins. No, they're coming. They're on its way. Verse 17 and 18 then, he says, Seest thou not what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead their dough. That sounds great, like a little family bread-baking business. But here's the problem. What are they cooking for? What are they baking for? To make cakes to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto other gods that they may provoke me to anger. Yes, the sin has now become a family affair. And instead of the family business being the gathering of Israel and the the keeping and extending of the Abrahamic covenant, no, the family business now has become idolatry. And even the children are involved. In verse 21, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, put your burnt offerings unto your sacrifices and eat flesh. In other words, why don't you just go ahead and eat all the meat that you're offering on the altar? Because I'm not here. I don't want it. So you might as well just have the big barbecue for yourselves. For I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. That wasn't my priority then. It's not my priority now. So which came first, the ends or the means? The ends for which sacrifice was being offered, turning turning them to the Lord their God, or those means? No, that wasn't the the focal point during the Exodus. So he goes on, But this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and ye shall be my people. And walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well unto you. I mean, think about Moses and the Exodus. And they, the focal point was, let's get to Sinai, where I can teach you how to live. And I can try to create of you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a peculiar treasure unto me. That's what the law of Moses was for, at least the moral law. But now you've been swept up in merely keeping the ceremonial law. That was an afterthought in many ways. Just something, a law of ordinances and performances, as Abinadi says, to get them to remember the Lord their God. The ceremonial law was put in service to the moral law. But unfortunately, by Jeremiah's day, the ceremonial law is, in their minds, taking the place of the moral law, giving them an excuse not to keep the moral law. I honestly think that's what was going on in Laman and Lemuel's mind when he accused Lehi of, you just misjudged all of our friends back in Jerusalem. Same time period, by the way. You accused them of being wicked, but we know they're not. And you picture Lehi going, what's your evidence? And Laman and Lemuel's response, they keep the law of Moses. To which I would say, which part of the law? 
yeah, they may be offering token sacrifices. They're showing, they're lining up at the temple and they're bringing their meat offerings. But if you think that excuses them from keeping the moral law, then they're not the righteous people you chalk them up to be. And neither are you, Laman and Lemuel, if you think that that's all that God requires. He wants a broken heart and a contrite spirit. That's what sacrifice was meant to point them toward and prepare them to give. But it hasn't been working. So another example of the rejection and hopeful rehabilitation of worship. Next, he says in 25 through 27, since they wouldn't, <laughs> they wouldn't be rehabilitated. Since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt unto this day, I have even sent unto you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them, trying to nip iniquity in the bud. Yet they hearkened not unto me, nor inclined their ear, but hardened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Therefore thou shalt speak all these words unto them, but they will not hearken to thee. Thou shalt also call unto them, but they will not answer thee. Even if it doesn't seem to work. Round after round of the pride cycle, for example. God's not given up on them. And he'll keep sending prophets. Waking up early. Trying to give people another chance. It's incredible how endlessly infinitely merciful the God of Israel really is. The question comes, is there, not that his mercy runs out, but are we past feeling? Are, have we proven that nothing will work? Because Jeremiah chapter 8 does suggest, do you reach a point where it's too late for people to change? He, Jeremiah, that is, continues warning the people of this destruction that awaits them if they don't repent. He describes a scene of death and desolation with bones being spread out before the sun. And then he says in verse 3, And death shall be chosen rather than life by all the residue of them that remain of this evil family. Remember the family affair? Dad's kindling the fire, children gathering the wood, mom baking the, the bread. No, everything's gone now. The whole family has been, has been wasted all those which remain in all the places whither I have driven them, saith the Lord of hosts. And you know there's something wrong in the world when people would rather die than live. The way that's phrased, that death shall be chosen rather than life. Remember back uh, when they were about to enter the promised land and Moses sets it all out as clearly as he can? Uh, the, a, a compelling choice in front of you. I have laid before you life and death, wherefore choose life. But by Jeremiah's day, they're choosing death. That's why I'm trying to paint the picture as clearly as I can, that this really spiritual death is what you're... This is spiritual suicide you're committing. And it is physical death that awaits you at the hand of the Babylonians. Will that wake you up or jolt you into a sense of, of repentance? No, you're still choosing death. And by choosing spiritual death, with the coming of the Babylonians, you're choosing physical death as well. So verse 5 and 6. Why then is this people of Jerusalem slidden back by a perpetual backsliding? This is Sisyphus. You climb only to fall back down. And you never make permanent changes. 
They hold fast deceit, he says. They refuse to return. I hearkened and heard, but they spake not aright. No man repented him of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Now everyone turned to his course as the horse rusheth into the battle. There's no remorse. There's no repentance. Remember, there's no blushing on the face. I'm not doing anything wrong. Then verse 12, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed. Neither could they blush. Therefore shall they fall among them that fall. In the time of their visitation they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. Evil has become so normalized that feeling guilt isn't even an option. Like, what do you mean? Everyone does this. This is the popular approach. Or there's no law, therefore there's no sin, therefore there's no consequence. <laughs> what, are you trying to shame me? No, no, no. I'm actually hoping that the Holy Ghost can guilt you. We're not trying to create a shame culture. But when there is a God that has absolute truth, then there's no avoiding a guilt culture. Because guilt is internalized. Guilt is the Holy Ghost pricking the conscience. Guilt to the soul is like pain to the body. It's an alert to stop touching the, the stop leaning on the, on the stove. It's an alert that some damage is being done and pain is meant to shock you into getting out of that situation. Guilt is meant to accomplish the same thing. So what does he say next? Verse 17, For behold, I will send serpents, cockatrices among you, which will not be charmed, and they shall bite you, saith the Lord. I love that verse. We've seen cockatrice eggs hatching. We've seen serpents and snakes before. But in light of what he's been saying about, oh, you come to the temple. I was like, hey, the temple, the temple, the temple are these. We're good. I come and check the box on the ceremonial law so I can get away with breaking the moral law. It's all fine. What are they doing? The analogy here is, I mean, it's worthy of Isaiah. Jeremiah's words, you think you're snake charmers, don't you? Oh, you've let the cockatrice hatch, but no big deal because you can whistle on your flute and charm them. Think about, in your mind, a snake charmer. And this cobra is rearing up right before them. It's crazy that, that people will do that. But they're confident in their ability to charm the cobra, to lull the cockatrice into, into safe relations. Oh, no, let me just mesmerize you, hypnotize you. And I, I, you, you will not attack me. That's exactly, I can't think of a better analogy. It really blows my mind. And we still live in a day of snake charmers that are trying to play their flute before us all, saying that the snake won't bite you. Okay, there's, you won't pay the piper. There's no consequences of sin. It's all fine, and you'll never get bit. Well, be careful. These particular serpents will not be charmed. So instead, what are the people finally going to say when it's too late to repent and destruction has actually come? They have snake bite marks, fang marks on their arm and venom flowing through their veins. Verse 20 through 22, this is what they'll say. The harvest is past. 
The summer is ended, and we are not saved. From this weeping prophet, those are about as sad a phrases as you could ask for. Harvest is past. I let the time come and go. This is Amulek saying, today, right now is the day of your repentance. It's, don't procrastinate. This is the day to prepare to meet God. But no, that day is past. The summer's over. And what comes after summer? Fall. Too late to plant now. And what happens after fall? It's winter, a period of death. And that's where I'm headed. I'm not saved. And it's too late to make a difference about that now. He goes on, For the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. I, this pains me as much as it's paining you. I am black, he says. Astonishment hath taken hold on me. And then this famous question, Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Isn't there something we can do? This is the person who refused to take their preventative medicine all this time. And when they finally are about to succumb to the disease, this fatal illness, that's when they start begging their doctor for medicine. Don't you have anything that will cure me? I had preventative medicine laid out for you, prescribed to you all this time. But the summer is ended and your soul is not saved. Why didn't you take the medicine I prescribed when you had time to do so? What are we left to do? Well, if the patient is about to pass, then we are left to simply mourn over their passing. And Jeremiah chapter 9 shows this weeping prophet mourning over the wickedness of the world. We know of a God who weeps. Well, his prophets weep right alongside him. In verse 1, he says, Oh, that my head were waters, and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. The prophet's attitude is never, I told you so. Rather, it is mourning with those who mourn. It is a sense of deep, deep anguish. Sorrow, not for sins that they committed, because they didn't, or they repented of them, but sorrow for the sins that others would not repent of. Probably sorrow over a sense of failure on their part. I wasn't able to change things. I couldn't get them to repent. Jeremiah then goes on and describes their sins in more and more creative ways. In verse 3, he says, They bend their tongues like their bow for lies, but they are not valiant for the truth upon the earth, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they know not me, saith the Lord. Can you imagine your tongue being a bow and your lies being an arrow? And every chance you get, you just look around at targets out there and you fire off these lies from your bow-like tongue. In verse 5, here's another interesting analogy. They will deceive everyone his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies and weary themselves to commit iniquity. Well, yeah, I guess it is a tiring thing when you keep proceeding from evil to evil, like he said in the previous verse. Oh, I've done enough damage here. What's my next victim? Or my next you know, conquest or my next escapade? Well, not, your tongue is a bow in verse 3. It's... It's a good student in verse 5, as you're teaching it to lie. Or verse 8, 
Their tongue is an arrow shot out. It speaketh deceit. One speaketh peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth, but in heart he layeth his weight. Three different verses, three, five, and eight, all about the tongue. In the first, it's the bow. In the third, it's the arrow. And somewhere in between, it's the model student learning iniquity. When somebody sticks their tongue out at you, picture that. That's an arrow shot out. When somebody says negative words, when somebody tries to give you a false sense of security in your sin or tries to pacify you, as Nephi said Satan would do, that, that tongue is an arrow shot out, and you're the target. Verse 16, he says, I will scatter them also among the heathen. That's what the Assyrians did to your sister, whom neither they nor their fathers have known. And I will send a sword after them till I have consumed them. And that's what the Babylonians will do to you. Same verse. And we see scattering and sword. Assyria, Babylon. So Jeremiah calls for mourners and says in verse 18 and 19, let them make haste and take up a wailing for us, that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids gush out with waters. Just what he was praying for for himself back in verse 1. Now, misery loves company. He wants other people to mourn right alongside him. For a voice of wailing is heard out of Zion. How are we spoiled? We are greatly confounded because we have forsaken the land, because our dwellings have cast us out. But is that all you're mourning for? That you were kicked out of your homeland? Not that you have abandoned your Lord? Again, this is the sorrow of the damned. You're only sad you got caught. You're only sad for what you're suffering. You're not yet sorrowing over the things you did to bring on this self-destruction. In verse 22, speak, Jeremiah is told. And here's his message. Thus saith the Lord, Even the carcasses of men shall fall as dung upon the open field. Talk about human beings being completely dehumanized. This is not just your men and women, your children will fall by the sword. No, now it's just, oh, the carcasses will fall like dung. And that's all it will be. Your rotting corpses will provide fertilizer for the fields upon which they're slain. You don't seem to care. I'm trying to jolt you into a, a recognition of what we're up against. He goes on, as the handful after the harvestmen, and none shall gather them. That's an interesting analogy too. If it's harvest time, and the food just seems to be coming in by the bushel full, then if you've got a handful and some falls through your fingers, are you going to take the time to stop and pick it up? In days of famine, yes, but days of feast, it's not even worth it. In fact, you can take a whole handful of grain and just kind of toss it behind you. Let it drop through your finger. It doesn't matter. we got so much else. Is that what he's describing? That things have gotten so bad that they don't see the value of life at all? It's no big deal. It's just carcasses, just rotting like dung. It's just drop, drop the food through your fingers. It's harvest with other things. No big deal. Now, this is a big deal. You better wake up to it. He says in verse 23 and 4, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exerciseth loving kindness. That's, where I, that's what I lead out with every time. Judgment, 
if you don't change, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, saith the Lord. What really matters? Okay, you're wise. Are you smart enough to figure out a way to avoid the imminent destruction? You are mighty. Well, glory in that. You won't be mighty enough to to offset an army that's conquering the world. You're rich. Fine. You think you can buy yourself out of this? The only thing worth glorying in is glorying in a knowledge and understanding of me. This is life eternal, Jesus says, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Why do we rejoice in, in things of no worth? Why do we glory in things that aren't very glorious? I think our priorities are off. Our perspective is skewed. So Jeremiah says in verse 25 and 26, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will punish all them that are circumcised with the uncircumcised, Egypt and Judah and Edom and the children of Ammon and Moab and all that are in the utmost corners that dwell in the wilderness. For all these nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. Interesting how he puts that that, in that way. Because again, the, the, the temple, the temple, the temple, we've got it. I'm circumcised. I have the token of the covenant, so I'm good. I'm safe. I don't have to live righteously when I have all the trappings of righteousness. Okay, fine. Then let me make this abundantly clear. I will see no difference between outwardly circumcised and outwardly uncircumcised people. I'm going to take away this covering of lies that you think you've been hiding underneath. I'm going to take away the shield because there's no faith in it. I will treat you no different than the Egyptians, Edomites, Ammonites, Moabites, all these people that were your enemies. Well, you've become your own enemy. And no amount of token membership is going to see you through. You have been worshiping false idols instead of the true God. And so let me give you another chapter on that, shall I? This is Jeremiah chapter 10. And in it, Jeremiah makes fun of the worship of idols, just as Isaiah had done before. He's trying to almost laugh them out of their iniquity. He says in 3 through 5, For the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen, with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers that it move not. They are upright as the palm tree, but speak not. They must needs be born because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither also is it in them to do good. That's almost exactly what Isaiah had said as he was poking fun. It's really close even to what Elijah was doing up on the mountaintop, wondering where Baal was these days, and why he wasn't coming to the, to the party that was being thrown in his honor. No, these idols are impotent. Why would you put your trust in them? In verse 6, he says, For as much as there is none like unto thee, O Lord, thou art great, and thy name is great in might. He's the only one worth worshiping. Verse 10, he says it again, The Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting king. 
At his wrath, the earth shall tremble. You're about to see that at the hands of the Babylonians. And the nations shall not be able to abide his indignation. Still, however, the people abandoned God. And so they're left to themselves. And as a result, verse 20, my tabernacle is spoiled and all my cords are broken. My children are gone forth of me and they are not. There is none to stretch forth my tent anymore and to set up my curtains. This is the opposite of what Isaiah had described when he showed us the tent of Zion. Lengthen thy cords and strengthen thy stakes. Because there's not enough room here for all the people that are being gathered in. No, this is the opposite. My children are gone. They are not. They've left me. They've abandoned me. So why do I need a tent this big? Take it down. My tabernacle is spoiled. My cords are broken. No need to stretch forth cords or strengthen stakes. Let's break camp and leave this scene of desolation. And who's to blame for it all? Look at 21. For the pastors are become brutish and have not sought the Lord. Therefore they shall not prosper and all their flocks shall be scattered. These are selfish shepherds leaving the sheep to suffer on their own. No wonder God needs to call new prophets men along the lines of a Jeremiah or an Ezekiel or a Daniel or a Lehi and a Nephi. We need better shepherds. Otherwise the flocks will scatter. Then 23 and 24, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. There's an interesting admission there. We can't do this on our own. And so here's the prayer. O Lord, correct me, but with judgment, not in thine anger, lest thou bring me to nothing. This is a powerful passage. We can't figure this out on our own. The broken thing can't fix itself. I just, we're not good enough to figure that out. So please help us and please heal us. Please correct us, but please do it judiciously. Do it with judgment, not in anger, or there will be no remnant remaining. There'll be nothing left. Now, God doesn't have to be calmed or reminded with that. He only reproves be time with sharpness. And always shows forth afterwards a greater outpouring of love. We are not his enemies and he never treats us like we are. But it is a beautiful prayer on Jeremiah's part with this admission. We are sottish children and I'm sorry on behalf of us all. So in chapter 11, Jeremiah reminds everyone of the covenant. The word itself is repeated five times in this brief chapter. As the Lord reviews how Israel was brought into the covenant and then they broke it throughout their history. I'm just going to share a few examples of it. Verse 1 through 3. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Hear ye the words of this covenant. And speak unto the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Cursed be the man that obeyeth not the words of this covenant. That's what it all boils down to. Go back to Abraham. Look to the rock from whence you are hewn. He was a covenant maker and a covenant keeper. You need to live into that legacy. He says the similar words in 4 through 5. 
which I commanded you, this covenant which I commanded your fathers in the day that I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, from the iron furnace, saying, Obey my voice and do them according to all which I command you, so shall ye be my people, and I will be your God, that I may perform the oath, there's the covenant again, which I have sworn unto your fathers, to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, as it is this day. Then answered I and said, So be it, O Lord. And Jeremiah then goes and reviews the covenant with the people, but emphasizes the fact that throughout Israel's history, they seldom have kept it. We're lucky, lucky to have lasted this long, despite all of our covenant breaking. But the fact that God is still holding on to the relationship, he's still holding to the covenant himself, even though we keep breaking it, that's, that's been our only salvation, and it's our only hope now. He didn't sign the divorce papers so we can come back. Otherwise, look north. It's scattering. And here in the South, it will be exile and captivity. And only someday, if people will turn back to the Lord, he'll still be waiting there with covenant in hand. Only then will he gather us. And that's what chapter 12 is about. Verse 1 and 2, Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee. Yet, let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Now, this is really gutsy here, because it's as if Jeremiah is going to second-guess God's government of the universe. Kind of like Job did, right? It's like, you're, I don't think you're seeing things clearly down here because I don't deserve this kind of punishment. Well, here, Jeremiah, let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Okay, let's just, can we have a discussion here? And he asks, wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all they happy that deal very treacherously? Thou hast planted them, yea, they have taken root. They grow, yea, they bring forth fruit. Thou art near in their mouth and far from their reins. It's a lot like what Isaiah said and what the Lord says to Joseph Smith in the first vision. They draw near me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Same thing here. Thou art near in their mouth. They talk the talk, but they're far from their reins, their kidneys, their guts, their, their bowels. They don't feel for you. They don't care about you. They just mention you in passing to check a box. And yet somehow they still prosper. You understand why I'm a little confused about your governance of the universe? It would be so much more clear to people if, if our oversimplified uh, consequence or law of the harvest were, were more clear. That every time you sin, you are immediately punished. And it's, it's obvious. And when you're righteous, you're immediately blessed. And I mean, wouldn't that be a better way to run things? I mean, I know righteous art thou, O Lord. I know you know what you're doing, but do you know what you're doing? Do you get a sense of how much God believes in the principle of faith? And that you don't receive a witness until after the trial of your faith? That you have to trust that I, that I do know what I'm doing and that ultimately justice will be served. It's happening now that the Babylonians are on their way. Believe me, the, the, the wicked aren't going to be prospering any longer. They're going to be in captivity even, or that is if they survive. Many of them won't. So what do we do from here? Okay, then I'll trust you. I will believe that you're, you know what you're doing. But are, are we still going to let 
the Babylonians come? Well, look at verse 7. I have forsaken mine house. I have left mine heritage. I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. That is such a moving verse because it suggests that the Lord, that this hurts him even more than it's going to hurt the people. And it's going to destroy the people, which means here it's destroying the Lord emotionally. Why do I let the wicked sometimes prosper? I, I hope that they'll change, actually. Why do I withhold immediate consequence? Because I hate to see them suffer. I want them to change because they know me and they love me, not because they fear me in some kind of a fear and trembling sort of a way. No, a fear in terms of reverence and respect. That's for their sake. But the way he said it there, I forsook my own house. I moved out because I no longer felt welcome there. I left my heritage. That was my promised land. And I set it up just as a place, our dream home, that we could live out our retirement years together in bliss, happily ever after. I gave the dearly beloved of my soul. That's how God is describing a wicked, adulterous, unfaithful people. The beloved, the dearly beloved of my soul. Yeah, that's why I married her. That's why I still love her. And she's about to be destroyed, and it's too late for me to do anything about it unilaterally. They have to change. Because my mercy hasn't worked. And so it will have to give way to justice. But it pains me. In verse 10 and 11, who's to blame? Many pastors have destroyed my vineyard. They have trodden my portion underfoot. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. I made it blossom as the rose. They're going around stomping out the rose bushes. They have made it desolate, and being desolate, it mourneth unto me. The whole land is made desolate, because no man layeth it to heart. This reminds me of Moses 6 and 7, when the earth itself is lamenting its sorry state. And when will I find peace and freedom from the wickedness that is all over my face? The promised land itself is mourning over its own desolation. Wicked pastors, yeah, I, need, I need better shepherds for my sheep. He then says in 14 and 15, Thus saith the Lord against all mine evil neighbors that touch the inheritance which I have caused my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them out of their land and pluck out the house of Judah from among them. And it shall come to pass after that I have plucked them out. I will return and have compassion on them and will bring them again, every man to his heritage and every man to his land. Once again, there will be scattering, but I promise there will come a day of gathering. Jeremiah chapter 13, he then shifts metaphors more, and turns to a new visual aid. We saw the almond branch. We saw the, the boiling pot. Here we are going to see a piece of clothing, an undergarment meant to be kept clean, but instead that has become defiled. 
in hopes that Israel will recognize what they're doing to themselves. They are defiling their garments. So Jeremiah 13, he puts on a linen girdle. He's told by God to do that. And a girdle could be anything from a sash to a loincloth to a belt or some kind of undergarment. And he's told to wear it, but don't wash it. Well, if it's an undergarment, this thing's going to get pretty uh, filthy, soiled, uh, dirty with time. But again, don't wash this because they're not washing their iniquity. Let's act out. Let them catch a whiff, for example, of the stench of sin. And so he wears this and then finally is told to take it off and then go hide it in a cave or some kind of cleft of the rock next to a river. You see, that way, I mean, nothing breeds bacteria and, and other filth quite like moisture and exposure. So after, let that sit and rot for many days and then go get it. And Jeremiah does, and he comes back and he brings the girdle with him and it is marred, is the word that's used. It was profitable for nothing, is the way it's described. It's, this, it's good for nothing, it's disgusting now. It is so ruined by this that it... It will do no one any good. And that's the point. God then tells Jeremiah, use it as your object lesson. There's your visual aid. That is Judah to me. As disgusting as that is, that's what Judah looks like. Verse 11, for as the girdle cleaveth to the loins of a man, so have I caused to cleave unto me the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, saith the Lord. That's how close you were, right up against my skin that they might be unto me for a people, and for a name, and for a praise, and for a glory, but they would not hear. No wonder they turned out like a ruined garment, like a spoiled covering. And remember, covering to clothe your nakedness, there's atonement symbolism there. They've ruined all of that. So with that as visual, Jeremiah goes and pleads with the people to repent. In verse 16, he says, give glory to the Lord your God, before he caused darkness, and before your feet stumble upon the dark mountains. And while ye look for light, he turn it into the shadow of death and make it gross darkness. Remember the blind men groping for the wall that Isaiah talked about? Well, here, according to Jeremiah, it's going to be you people. And you're, you have a choice right now to walk toward the light and live within it. If you don't go there, then you will dwell in the darkness. In verse 17, If ye will not hear it, my soul shall weep in secret places for your pride. Mine eye shall weep sore and run down with tears, because the Lord's flock is carried away captive. Again, this is sorrow instead of anger. I'm not saying, neener, neener, I told you so. I'm not saying you made your bed and lie, now lie in it. No, I'm devastated for you. I am mourning over your sins, which is ironic since you're not mourning over them yourselves. This is Isaiah 40's call to comfort ye my people. Well, even the prophet himself needs to be comforted here. In verse 23, he then asks, Can the Ethiopian change his skin, or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. The NIV renders that, Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. So he's giving rhetorical questions here. Can people really change? Can a leopard change his spots? It seems like that's a no. Because God keeps giving you more and more chances to change. 
you're just not taking up his offer. That's the tragedy here. So he says, therefore will I scatter them as the stubble that passeth away by the wind of the wilderness. Maybe that will change. Maybe let's take the leopard out of the jungle. Let's take the Ethiopian out of Ethiopia. Let's pull you out of a place where you seem like you are lulled into the promises just because your land has been promised you. Well, maybe if I show that the results of you breaking your end of the promise is me breaking my end. I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say. Worse, though, I'm more often bound by what you don't do, when you don't do what I say. Because then I cannot bless you. I can't. These promises are all conditional, and I can't keep my end of the bargain if you don't keep yours. And so you'll be cast out of the promised land, and maybe that will jolt you into a sense of wanting to keep your promises. The moment you do and come to your senses, believe me, I'm, I'm already in my senses, always have been, and I'll be ready to keep my end of the conditional promises as well. Verse 25, he then says, This is thy lot, the portion of thy measures from me, saith the Lord, because thou hast forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. Therefore will I discover thy skirts upon thy face, that thy shame may appear. You'll, you'll look down and see the girdle you've been wearing all this time, and it will disgust you, finally. He says, I have seen thine adulteries and thy names, the lewdness of thy whoredom, and thine abominations on the hills, in the fields. Woe unto thee, O Jerusalem! Wilt thou not be made clean? When shall it once be? Let's air some of your dirty laundry, shall we? Let's take off this covering of the coat of skins. Let's expose your spiritual nakedness. And maybe you'll want to change. Because I'm the only hope you have to ever become clean again. Trust in me, not in, and trust in true prophets, not in the false ones. Jeremiah chapter 14, he will... He will decry the falsehood that's out there. False prophets giving false assurances that are keeping people from recognizing, I've got to repent and change. The people are, at this point, suffering through drought and famine. Okay? They've evicted God, so he can't help them. And so Jeremiah is still left among them, and he prays for them. He says in verse 8 and 9, O oh, the hope of Israel, the Savior thereof in time of trouble, why shouldst thou be as a stranger in the land? And as a wayfaring man that turneth aside to tarry for a night. Why shouldst thou be as a man astonished, as a mighty man that cannot save? Yet thou, O Lord, art in the midst of us, and we are called by thy name. Leave us not. Interesting how he describes this. You're the hope of Israel. You're the Savior. This is your land. Then why are you acting like a stranger here? Why are you acting like a wayfaring man? Just a wanderer who pops in for a night. Well, think about your question, Jeremiah. I hope that you're asking this on behalf of the people, because you know better. I don't think they do. And that is the people's concern. God seems to just kind of come and go in our lives. Sometimes he's here blessing us. Other times he's gone and we feel forsaken and forgotten. Don't forget it's your behavior that is affecting this. Okay? God is the constant in the, in the marriage it's Israel that is always fluctuating as far as their faithfulness is concerned. So why just stay for a night? Because that's, I don't feel welcome any longer than that. 
you are giving the absolute minimum standards of hospitality. I'll put a roof over you for the night, but then you're, wandering, you're wayfaring, right? You're not going to stay. It's interesting how often we and they only want God to kind of pop in and pop out when we need him. Or I guess we'll endure an evening of his company. But you're not going to move in, are you? This is a marriage. We're, we're, we're moving in, okay? Verse 11, he then says, Then said the Lord unto me, Pray not for this people for their good. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. When they offer burnt offering and an oblation, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. And those are the big three that Jeremiah talks about and Ezekiel will talk about. Though That's what you're up against as the Babylonians are on their way. And yes, Jeremiah, it's too late for you to intercede because... You don't have to talk to me about me changing my mind. You've got to talk to them about them changing theirs. If he's the marriage therapist here, God isn't the cause of the, the friction. Israel is. He then says in verse 13, Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say unto them, the false prophets, that is, Ye shall not see the sword, neither shall ye have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. Then the Lord said unto me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not, neither have I commanded them, neither spake unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination, and the thing of naught, and the deceit of their hearts. Like I said, this is false prophets giving false assurances. This is the priests of Noah telling the people, No, it's all good. We're publishing peace. Look at our beautiful feet. You can do anything you want, and there's either no sin and no law, well, no law, no sin, no consequence, or as long as we give our token offerings and kill the fatted calf, we can give God the smoke and we can eat the fat ourselves. Oh, be careful. That's falsehood from top to bottom. And the Lord did not send those prophets. By their fruits you shall know them. You could say the same by the fruits of the people that listen to them. You can know a lot about those prophets, too. In verse 15, Therefore thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that prophesy in my name, and I sent them not. Yet they say, Sword and famine shall not be in this land. Well, guess what? By sword and famine shall those prophets be consumed. How's that for poetic justice? What you promised would never happen to the people is going to happen to you directly. And there's no avoiding it. So Jeremiah prophesies exactly what they were saying wouldn't happen. This goes back to what we saw earlier in when the prophet Micaiah comes along and tells the king what he wants to hear, and even the king knows. It's like, you never have anything good to say. Well, yeah, because you're never worthy of good news. Well, then tell me really what the Lord wants to tell me. Well, then you're going to be destroyed. Well, I didn't want to hear that. <laughs> Make up your mind. Change your heart. But that's what's happening here. So Jeremiah warns them, if you, the city's going to be laid under siege, uh, and inside there's going to be famine, and you'll die from it. But outside, you're going to die from the sword. So take your pick. Darned if you do, darned if you don't. Uh, do you want the quick death at the, at the sword, or do you want the slow death at, at the hands of famine? Or since either one will lead to the pestilence, then <laughs> I guess that'll pick off whatever stragglers remain. I know this sounds brutal, but it's our own fault. I'm, I know I'm not publishing what you think is peace here. 
Jeremiah is the Abinadi in this story. The false prophets are the priests of Noah. And yes, I have hard news, but I refuse to bring down that line to eliminate the guilt gap. I'm crying repentance so you can change and eliminate the guilt. The gap is also filled with grace. That's what's giving you time to change. But the clock is ticking. In fact, by the end of this chapter, verses 19 to 21, Jeremiah turns to the Lord and asks, Hast thou utterly rejected Judah? Hath thy soul loathed Zion? Is it, is it past the point of no return? Why hast thou smitten us, and there is no healing for us? We looked for peace, and there is no good, and for the time of healing, and behold, trouble. We acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness, and the iniquity of our fathers. For we have sinned against thee. Do not abhor us. For thy name's sake, do not disgrace the throne of thy glory. Remember, break not thy covenant with us. That, to me, is one of the most beautiful pleas for mercy you could find in Scripture. That, to me, is textbook godly sorrow, broken heart, contrite spirit. That's what contrition looks like. Unfortunately, it's coming from the lips of the innocent instead of the guilty. This is the prophet in some ways. You want a visual aid? This isn't one God is asking of me. This is what I'm providing for you myself. Let me show you what repentance looks like. Let me plead with the Lord. Let me acknowledge our wickedness. Can you hear the collective pronoun there? It was humble of Jeremiah to say we and our. It really was theirs. It belonged to the people and they were not changing. God, don't break your covenant with us. It's not God that we have to worry about. It's the people. It's us. And that's the question that Jeremiah, I think, is leaving on the hearts and minds of his hearers. Will we repent? Will we acknowledge our wickedness? And will we decide once and for all not to break our covenants with God? Will the people do it? That's the question. In Jeremiah chapter 15, the answer seems to be no. Will we keep our covenants? Will we be able to avoid disaster? Unfortunately, no, because this chapter shows the destruction of Judah. It's on its way. Verse 1, Then said the Lord unto me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my mind could not be toward the people. Cast them out of my sight, let them go forth. Interesting that the Lord is... I mean, the Lord's been the one constant. He knows all of these prophets. It's like, you know, Jeremiah, you sound a lot like Moses and a lot like Samuel. Moses, after all, kept trying to intercede with me. Don't destroy the people. I don't want to be Adam 3.0 or, or Noah 2.0. Uh, let's just keep going and, and I hope that the people will change. Or Samuel, when... The people are choosing a wrong thing, and he knows it, and he warns them against it, but ultimately, at God's direction, honors their agency, and actually even tries to make life under a king as positive as possible. I mean, Moses and Samuel are really good intercessors. They're good defense attorneys, if you want to call them that, and Jeremiah is trying to be that too. 
But here the Lord is saying, sorry, uh, it's the people's fault. And there's no, there's no chance for the defense arguments to carry the day because you don't have a, rep- a repentant client. They won't change. In verse 2 and 3, it shall come to pass, if they say unto thee, Whither shall we go forth? Then thou shalt tell them, Thus saith the Lord. Here's your options. Such as are for death, to death. Such as are for the sword, to the sword. Such as are for the famine, to the famine. And such as are for the captivity, to the captivity. Pick your poison. Which do you want? He even adds, And I will appoint over them four kinds, saith the Lord. The sword to slay, the dogs to tear, the fowls of the heaven, the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. Oh, what, would you, what do you prefer? I can picture Israel with when the menu is put there in front of them, and those are my options. Uh, is there like an E, none of the above? Because none of those four possibilities sound very promising to me. Well, then keep your promises. Keep your covenants and come back. And it's not too late yet, but we're getting closer and closer. Verse 4, I will cause them to be removed into all kingdoms of the earth, There's the scattering. Because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for that which he did in Jerusalem, reversing all the reforms of his righteous father, returning the people to their idolatry. He's the one that that pulled them away into their infidelity. For who shall have pity upon thee, O Jerusalem? God asks. Or who shall bemoan thee? Or who shall go aside to ask how thou doest? You see, there's not going to be anyone left to do any of that. No one's going to mourn because everyone knows that you brought this evil upon yourselves. Thou hast forsaken me, saith the Lord. Thou art gone backward. Therefore will I stretch out my hand against thee and destroy thee. I am weary with repenting. And so often when repentance is used in terms of what God is doing or feeling... It's not about God repenting of some sin on his part. No, it's God changing his mind, usually in terms of being more merciful than his judgment originally, or that his justice originally demanded. But here, I'm weary with repenting. The NIV renders that, I am tired of holding back. I have turned so many cheeks, I've lost track. I'm well beyond the seven times 70. And nothing, my mercy doesn't seem to be working. And ultimately, the C.S. Lewis taught this, mercy at a certain point becomes unmerciful because it's now being taken for granted. You now have become an enabler of someone else's sins. You now have become codependent and your mercy is now part of the problem because they don't think the, the bill will ever come due. That's the problem here. And so the bill is coming and King Nebuchadnezzar is the one to deliver it. Jeremiah prophesies of their destruction and then adds in verse 11, the Lord said, verily it shall be well with thy remnant. Verily I will cause the enemy to entreat thee well in the time of evil and in the time of affliction. So I can't promise you deliverance, but I will promise that there will be some to survive. They will be the the remnant, righteous or not, just some leaven that hopefully someday can begin to leaven a lump. But knowing what the people will go through at the hands of their enemies, Jeremiah then prays in verse 15, O Lord, thou knowest, remember me 
and visit me, and revenge me of my persecutors. Take me not away in thy long suffering. Know that for thy sake I have suffered rebuke. Thy words were found, and I did eat them. I truly, I love that analogy. I internalized them. I digested them. I made it a part of myself. That's my, the moving force behind my actions. I am what I eat, and I ate your words. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. For I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. I sat not in the assembly of the mockers, nor rejoiced. I sat alone because of thy hand, for thou hast filled me with indignation. You see what is happening here? Jeremiah has been trying to pray on behalf of the people until the Lord said, stop. It, they're the ones that have to change. You don't have to talk to me. The atonement of Jesus Christ wasn't to change God's mind about anything. It was trying to change our minds about things. And Jeremiah is doing, he's learning a similar lesson. And so what does he shift his prayer to? Not in a selfish way, but he prays for himself. Okay, then. I'll be that one righteous person you were looking for. I will hold out faithful to the end, but I pray you'll remember me and be with me. You said that at the beginning, you would deliver me. Now that I know that there's no delivering us collectively, I tried the collective prayer. And if that cannot be answered, because I'm alone in my righteousness, then will you... Will you bless me with deliverance, as you promised? I love the way he describes... Well, President Hinckley gave a talk once years ago called The Loneliness of Leadership. And perhaps you felt that loneliness yourself. Am I the only person doing what's right? Elijah felt that, remember? And God had to remind him there's 7,000 other good ones that are out there. You're not alone after all. But Jeremiah did seem to be fighting a losing battle and just wishes it were different. I have loved having thy word in my mouth. It's delicious to me. This is the fruit of the tree of life. It was joy and rejoicing, but it has been lonely because no one seems to listen. So please be with me and remember me. And the Lord responds in verses 19 through 21. He says to Jeremiah, let them return unto thee, but return not thou unto them. If they want to change, fine, let them come your way, but do not go their way. That's a tough one, especially if you're faithful and you have family members that are not, or you're the only one left in your friend circle that is active, and I just want to help, and I, I can't just cut and run. Well, I'm not asking you to, but don't run in their direction downhill. Reach out the hand and try to lift them up to a higher level. He then says, I will make thee unto this people a fenced brazen wall. Remember, we saw that in the very first chapter. Here's a repetition. They shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee. For I am with thee to save thee and to deliver thee, saith the Lord, and I will deliver thee out of the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem thee out of the hand of the terrible. That's my promise, and I'll keep it. Stick with me. You're not as alone as it feels. I'm with you every step of the way. And someday, oh, someday, you'll have friends aplenty. You'll have so many, you don't know what to do with them. It's one of those, who hath begotten me these kinds of moments. Because Jeremiah chapter 16 describes this gathering in magnificent terms. This is one of my favorite chapters in Jeremiah. 
Yeah, he's told at the beginning, again, you're my object lesson, you're my visual aid. Jeremiah is told, don't get married and don't have children. Wait, really? I thought that was part of the plan. Well, it is in most cases. But because destruction is so imminent, it's... Well, remember what Jesus says when he's on his way to Calvary? And the women of Jerusalem are weeping for him. And he says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and weep for your children. Because the day will come, a day of destruction so intense that if you are pregnant or have children, that will slow you down and you will not be able to run away from your enemies. Wow. Things are going to get so intense that it really is an every man for himself kind of moment. Yeah. That's what's going to happen when Rome comes in AD 70. Yep, that's what's going to happen when Babylon comes. So Jeremiah, you just complained about being alone. I'm sorry, I need you to be solitary even longer. So no wife and children. This is every man for himself. He even tells him, don't mourn anymore. I know they call you the weeping prophet. Dry your eyes. Don't go to funerals. I need you to be a stoic here because no one else seems to care. That's the problem. You're surrounded by stoics that aren't weeping over their own wickedness. It can't be only you that's feeling godly sorrow. So don't even mourn. But at the same time he's told not to mourn, he's also told not to feast. I want neither sorrow nor, nor joy. Again, true stoicism here. It's as if he's trying to make his prophet appear numb to the world. There's a pretty good visual aid because that's exactly what the world has become to God. Numb, senseless, past feeling, all of this. Jeremiah then goes on prophesying their scattering and destruction, but he turns it to a note of hope later in the chapter. In verse 14 and 15, powerful passage, therefore behold the days come, saith the Lord. And again, when he's talking about coming days, in those days, this is a latter-day prophecy. That it shall no more be said, the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. That, that's not what they're going to talk about anymore. When they talk about God and what's his defining moment, uh, kind of the glory days. You want to know our God, what he did? I mean, this is... Uh, the high school player that won the state championship or you know, the Super Bowl uh, victory or whatever it might be. And that's what I'm remembered for. But for God, they're no longer going to be talking about the Exodus. That, that's a thing of the past. I know it was big, but he did something bigger since then. So they will no longer refer to him as the Lord that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Well, what could possibly top the Exodus? Here it is. This is what they'll say instead. The Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands whither he hath driven them. And I will bring them again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. That's amazing. That is one of my favorite verses to help us picture just how epic the gathering of Israel will be. So epic that it eclipses the Exodus. Think about how many movies have been made about the Exodus. From Ten Commandments to the Prince of Egypt to Moses and all these others. Nobody's going to care about those movies anymore. I mean, they will for his history's sake. But if you really want to know a God of glory, a Lord of love, a Messiah of mercy, then look no further than the Latter-day Gathering of Israel. It will blow your mind. 
No more, no more Exodus stories. It's missionary work. Let's make movies about that, shall we? Let's show what it's like to gather Israel on both sides of the veil. And it is mind-blowing. That's what God is going to do in the latter days. It's what he's going to do through you and me. And that's amazing. We get to be the stars of this, of this Exodus sequel uh, that, that, that is so much better than the first. And then he says, to put it all in perspective, verse 16, famous passage. Behold, I will send for many fishers, saith the Lord, and they shall fish in them. And after will I send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them. And where will they hunt? From every mountain and from every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. In the context of what he just spoke about in the previous two verses, that the gathering of Israel, the latter-day gathering of Israel, will so far eclipse the Exodus that they don't even talk about the old one in favor of talking about the new. That's what these fishers and hunters are being called to do people to fish and hunt scattered Israel, wherever they might be. If we're going to bring back so many that the barren will be shocked and, who, and wonder who hath begotten me these. If kings will carry them in their arms and queens, put them upon their shoulders. If, if scattered Israel, no matter how far they've gone, have been brought back home to the point that that's what we're singing and writing and rejoicing about, that's what we're making movies about, missionaries and temple workers and ministering brothers and sisters and neighbors and friends, children of God all, who understand that the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. And if they spend their entire lives crying repentance and bring, save it be one fish or one hiding animal, then it was worth it. That's what fishing and hunting is all about. I think it's interesting though that there is a difference between fishing and hunting especially in the ancient world. Uh, in those days, think about fishermen. Picture a, a Peter, James, and John, for example, casting out their nets in the spot that Jesus points out and bringing in a boat full. That, there are some who are called to fishing missions. They are sent to places where the field is white, all ready to harvest, and you send out the word and bring in a net full. Others are called to hunting missions. And sure enough, you are searching in every mountain and every hill and in the holes of the rocks in hopes that you find anyone interested in or prepared for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know if there's anything more frustrating than being called to a hunting mission when you thought you were being asked to fish and wondering why you're not being successful and what's wrong with me and why can't I accomplish this work. I think there's value in simply recognizing Oh, you're called to hunt. Uh, uh, there are fishers out there, and they're doing an amazing job of fishing. You're doing an amazing job of hunting, too. Don't compare catches. Don't compare that. Simply thrust in your sickle with your might. Cast out your nets and become fishers of men. Have the, bent, the, the bow bent and the arrow sharp and ready at a moment's notice to give the word of God to share the good news, and to invite people to come unto Christ. Uh, in the recent general conference, the Saturday afternoon session, to see a choir, I've never seen a choir like this, an MTC choir that was as much senior missionary as young elder and sister. And it thrilled me to see my future self, <laughs> my wife and I up there, mingled among the, the senior missionaries, to think of 
men and women, boys and girls, you name the age. We need fishers, we need hunters, and we need people that are willing to go out and gather Israel. I want to say one thing quickly about the, the hunters, though, also. Since we seem to be living in a time of hunting more than in a time of fishing. Again, there are still fishing missions out there. Uh, but more and more, because of the secularization of society, we do a, a lot more hunting these days. Uh, for those who are prepared for the gospel. And think about the way he put it. The mountains, the hills, the holes of the rocks. If you remember way back at the beginning of Isaiah, this is chapter 2, verse 19, he said that they, those who are afraid of the consequences of their sins, they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. Compare that to the words of Alma the Younger. When he was in that, that coma, that angel-induced coma, uh, knocked unconscious because of the weight of sin that was upon his soul. And during that time of, of feeling absolutely lost, he wished he could be banished and cease to exist. One account, it says that he wished that he could call upon the mountains to cover him from the all-seeing eye of God. Talk about the holes of the rocks. Not on top of the mountains and hills, but underneath them. Those are among the people that we're searching for. And for us to be able to work our way in to those holes of the rocks where they are, they are hiding out of fear of the Lord and to reassure them, there's no reason to cower because our God is a God of mercy. He's a God of everlasting kindness and a Father who simply wants to bring you home. So come out of the, the hole with me. Come down the mountain. Actually, come up the mountain. Let's go to the top, the mountain of the Lord, and meet him there. All nations are flowing in that direction. There is something magnificent, something truly miraculous and breathtaking about the latter-day gathering of Israel on both sides of the veil. No wonder President Nelson talks about it so passionately and so frequently. The most important work that we can engage in. And again, to see that screen full of singing Saints, elders, sisters, senior couples, serving the Lord, it is a glorious thing. Keep reading in verse 19 to 21. O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction, the Gentiles shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth. That's part of the gathering too, not just gathering Israel, but gather Israel first so that they can then go out and gather everyone else. We want Jews and Gentiles, male and female, bond and free, black and white, all are alike unto God. So cast the nets ever wider. The Gentiles shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth and shall say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, vanity, things wherein there is no profit. Shall a man make gods unto himself, and they are no gods? Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know mine hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. What an interesting admission on the part of the Gentiles. Those that find themselves oh, face to face with the reality of the God of Israel and compare that to the, the inherited lies that they grew up with, most likely through no fault of their, uh, of their own or their parents' own. We were just outside the... The house of Israel. We didn't know. 
We were only kept from the truth because we knew not where to find it. And what a blessing that you have come to find us and introduce us to truth to offset our lies, humility to combat our vanity, things of infinite worth to take the place of that which doth not profit. What does it boil down to? I know the Lord now. He has caused me to know his hand, his might, his name. And it's a name I want to take upon myself. With that in mind, you move to chapter 17, and there is a beautiful description here of trees of life and Sabbaths of rest. There's good news mingled amidst the, the sorrowing of Jeremiah. In verse 1, it says that the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. And with the point of a diamond, it is graven upon the table of their heart and upon the horns of your altars. And that suggests there's no eraser for the kind of writing on the wall that announces their imminent destruction. If wickedness is that deeply etched into their souls, then where can you find an eraser strong enough to scrub that out? Well, Jeremiah continues warning them. He prophesies of their destruction. And like Isaiah before him, he warns them against placing their trust in man. That's not where help will come from. Instead, he says in verse 7 and 8, Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, and that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when heat cometh. But her leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful in the years of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. Imagine being immune from negative consequences. That you're not worried about drought. You're not worried about where am I going to find my next drink? Because you are a tree of life. You are planted by living waters. You're, you're not... Oh, looking at, at the bottom of a, a, a broken cistern, wondering where on earth you'll find water to drink. There is something powerful about being sufficiently tapped into that water source. In fact, the way Alma describes it, uh, it's a tree of life within you springing up. Uh, or Jesus to the woman at the well, the fount of living water is within you again. It's a portable tree and a portable well. How's that work? Those are two things that are fixed and rooted, right? Well, not the way the Lord gives it to us. And if we will turn to him and trust in him, then there's no fear. There's no worry about where our source of sustenance will come from. Then Jeremiah shares a beautiful psalm of praise to the Lord. He says in verse 12, A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary, O Lord the hope of Israel. All that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for thou art my praise. Can you sense Jeremiah's full faith in God? If you say I'm saved, then I'm saved. If you say I'm healed, then I feel better already. And I trust you in that. You are the fountain of living water. So often he comes back to that metaphor. God then gives Jeremiah the most, or a powerful message to give to the people. And in, interestingly enough, it's a plea to them to keep the Sabbath day. You might think, well, what does that have to do with what they're talking about? Well, evidently the Lord feels it has everything to do with it. 
you want to change. In fact, think of it back in terms of the, the marriage counseling. What do you think the therapist would say as this couple is wrestling with their marriage on the rocks? And one is forgiving, but the other isn't sure if they want to come back. I have a feeling that among other things, this counselor would counsel them. You need to spend more time together. You need to rekindle your relationship. And that takes time, both quantity and quality. So carve out time that you won't let anything else get in the way. Sound like the Sabbath? A chance for us to dedicate a day to the Lord, to work on our relationship, to deepen our love for one another. I know that I love my wife. I know it logically. I know it intellectually. But I only know it emotionally when I have spent sufficient time with her to remind us both of why we fell in love and got married in the first place. To have our, uh, a weekly date night, uh, as is often uh, recommended. To have a weekly day of Sabbath, which is more than recommended. It's commanded, and it's for our sake that he commands it. So notice what is said in verse 21 and 22. Thus saith the Lord, take heed to yourselves, and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. Neither carry forth a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day. Neither do ye any work, but hallowed ye the Sabbath day, as I commanded your fathers. Maybe it does begin with something that simple. Just carve out this time, sacred time, Sabbath, to go along with sacred space, temple, and take full advantage. He adds in verse 24 and 25, It shall come to pass, if... Ye diligently hearken unto me, saith the Lord, to bring in no burden through the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but hallow the Sabbath day to do no work therein. Then, so here's the if-then statement, if you'll do that, then shall there enter into the gates of this city kings and princes sitting upon the throne of David. The Davidic dynasty can outlast the Babylonian onslaught if you'll turn to the Lord if you'll keep the Sabbath day holy. These kings will come riding in chariots and on horses, they and their princes, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall remain forever. The Sabbath day can be your anchor, connecting you to God. It can be your sanctuary, a place of peace, home base, run back, and I I'm here, I'm at the altar, I'm in the sanctuary, I'm in this sacred time, and the world cannot reach me here. That's the hope. And if, if you can let the Sabbath make you holy by you keeping it holy, I'm, I'm not quite so worried about Babylonian influence. One day a week, you shed its concerns and wean yourself from the world. Now, Jeremiah 18, it's time for another visual aid. It's time for him to show Israel something visible, something tangible to help the outward reality sink into something on the inside. This one is uh, an analogy, a metaphor that Isaiah used, but Jeremiah is going to make this a little bit more literal. This object lesson, the Lord tells Jeremiah in verse 2, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. He gets to see this, and there he is shaping this pot. 
and the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. Hmm, maybe he's oh, still an apprentice. He hasn't quite mastered this. Something's wrong with this pot. But is that the end of the story? No, it goes on. So he made it again another vessel. That's it. That's, that's as simple as it was. As seemed good to the potter to make it. Jeremiah, you get the message? Well, just in case you missed it, let me clarify it. Verse 6, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord. Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in my hand, O house of Israel. You remember that story we told earlier about Boyd K. Packer and the, the carving, the sculpture of the bird that he'd made, and then a friend accidentally dropped it and it broke and he was devastated until President Packer reassured him, I made it, I can fix it. It's amazing to think of a potter just being patient with the process, knowing that uh, not every particle of dust is quite as obedient as it needs to be. Or this is a tricky design. I'm trying to do something that, oh, the clay naturally pushes back against. But if I can be patient, if I can keep working with it, and if I can just keep trying over and over and over again, I'm not going to give up on the clay. And God doesn't give up on us. We need to trust in that. Now, the clay hasn't yet been placed in the kiln. And as long as that's the case, then it's not too late for it to change. In fact, we've said before, it, even after it's in the kiln, it's still not too late. You can always grind it down back to powder, add living water, reconstitute the clay, and begin again. But that's what Jeremiah is concerned about. The kiln is getting closer. The fire is kindling. The, the pot is beginning to boil. And so this clay is beginning to harden. What shall we do here? He says in verse 7 and 8, At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it? I know that's what I said. That's what I promised. That's what I warned about. But if that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And again, a better word than repent of the evil. God will relent from the punishment that he had warned them about. Remember, that's the story of Jonah that we'll get to in a month or two. And he warns the people of Nineveh, you're about to be destroyed. And they all repent. And God says, oh, well, I wish Israel would do that more often. Uh, no worries about the punishment because you no longer deserve it. You're totally fine. And back to the idea of the potter, it hasn't been, it hasn't been fired. And so now is a great time to soften your heart, to mix in some more living water, and let's try again. If you'll change, not only are my blessings conditional, my punishments are too. Change your ways and you will not be deserving of it. So he says the flip side, verse 9 and 10. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it. If it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. So this goes in both directions. Just because you've been given promises, they don't come automatically. And just because you've been warned about consequences, those won't come automatically either. It's amazing how much God honors our agency. He just wants to know where each road ultimately leads so we can choose wisely. Verse 11 and 12 then, Now therefore go to, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I frame evil against you and devise a device against you. So there's the warning. But again, it's avoidable still. If you'll do this. 
Return ye now every one from his evil way, and make your ways and your doings good. Now, unfortunately, how do they react? They said, there is no hope, but we will walk after our own devices. We will every one do the imagination of his evil heart. This is exactly what we saw earlier in Jeremiah. I'll forgive you. Just come home. And she says, what's the point? I've made that my bed and now I'll lie in it. There's no use going back. I just can't change. It's not God that has hardened you. He didn't fire you in the kiln. You have hardened yourself. But if you'll simply turn to my spirit, it will soften you. Believe me when I say you can be forgiven. Jeremiah keeps crying repentance. He doesn't give up. He keeps warning them of destruction. He's, here's more Jeremiads coming out of the mouth of Jeremiah. And he keeps doing it until the people are absolutely sick of his words. In verse 18, they said, Come and let us devise devices against Jeremiah. God had warned him about that. For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come and let us smite him with the tongue, and let us not give heed to any of his words. You remember when the tongue was the bow or the tongue was the arrow? That's exactly what they're planning. Let's smite him with the tongue. Let's plug our ears and stick out our tongues. And let's do something far more violent than that. Let's just devise devices against him. And then that middle language is interesting because the law is not going to perish from the priest. Uh, what the prophets have said, uh, we're going to hold on to that. Now, here's the irony. Prophets promised good to the righteous. They promised evil to the wicked. But talk about selective hearing on the part of the people saying, well, we're going to take the words of the prophets that prophesied positivity. And we'll turn their words into unconditional promises of good. And that way we can say, hey, well, God already promised that we're going to be okay. This is the land of promise. Everything's going to work out. A remnant. I'll, I think I'll be part of that remnant. It'll be all good. And then we'll ignore the negativity that Jeremiah seems to be spewing. What we, what we have to be careful about is oh, cherry-picking words or phrases or promises that, that make us feel better about rationalizing our sins. If we are sinning knowingly, oh, we'd, we'd love to read all those mercy verses. Well, careful, you need to balance those with the justice verses. God is always proving contraries. And if you're on one extreme, it's the opposite set of passages you need to be reading. Jeremiah knows that. Well, that's only the first half of the object lesson. We've got our clay pot. What are we going to do with it now? Okay. Turn to chapter 19 and you'll see this acted out before the people. The Lord tells Jeremiah to take this clay pot from the potter. He brings it in as a visual aid before all of the people. And in his next call to repentance before the leaders of Israel or Judah, he describes their wickedness again. He warns them of punishment again and says in verse 8 and 9, I will make this city desolate and hissing. Like a hiss and a byword you will hear later in Scripture. Everyone that passeth thereby shall be astonished and hiss, kind of whisper behind their backs, because of all the plagues thereof. And I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. And they shall eat every one the flesh of his friend in the siege and straightness, wherewith their enemies and they that seek their lives shall straighten them. Now, this is absolute desperation. We saw earlier, what do you want? Do you want sword? Do you want famine? Do you want pestilence? 
Either way, you're going to get something if you don't repent. And here, as the famine intensifies, he's describing it. In fact, do you remember back when we studied in the reign uh, or in the ministry of Elisha? And the people of Samaria were laid under siege, I think, by the Syrians. And it got so intense. Supply and demand. Okay, there's massive demand and there is no more supply. We are being starved out. And things got so bad that they were, that, that a, a, a donkey head, has, I don't know how much meat is on a donkey head, but a donkey head was selling for dinner oh, just 80 pieces of silver. Are you kidding me? Well, it's, it's, I know it's not much meat on it, but then again, you don't have much fuel for a fire to cook it over anyway. Remember, a quarter uh, piece of dove dropping was going for five pieces of silver? I don't know how much of a fire you can get off a quarter piece of, of dove dropping. That's how intense and desperate people were. If you remember in that story, it's when two mothers come to complain before the king, saying, we made a deal that we would kill one of my children yesterday and cook it and eat it. And then it was the, her turn to sacrifice her child so we could cannibalize it today. Well, I did my half yesterday. She's not doing hers today. And the king is absolutely horrified at the state of things. Well, that was a preview of, of, of what we're seeing here. And for people to eat their children, to eat one another, now, literally, that could happen in a famine. Spiritually, are we approaching those days where we, the love of man has waxed cold to the point that we see one another simply as objects for us to obtain whatever we're seeking in life, whether it's family or whether it's friends? No wonder Jeremiah takes the pot that had its problems, but has tried to be made better and made whole. What does he finally do at the end of Jeremiah 19? He takes it and he smashes it before them. And says in verse 11, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Even so will I break this people and this city, as one breaketh a potter's vessel, that cannot be made whole again. And they shall bury them in Tophet, till there be no place to bury. Is that clear enough for you? I preferred the earlier half of the, of the visual aid. You can be remade. But this second half, unfortunately, is truer to form as far as the people of Judah are concerned. If you are hardened in your iniquity, stiffened in your sin, then there's nothing that can, there's nothing I can do other than break you. And Babylon will come and smash you to pieces now, those are fighting words. That is not what the people want to hear. They keep looking around for other prophets to tell them smoother things. Tell us that we're not doing anything wrong. Reassure us that God is forgiving, independent of what we do or don't do on our, our, on our end. And that's what happens in chapter 20. Jeremiah is going to face some serious persecution here, as God warned him about. But it's more intense than, than he imagined when the warning first came. The story begins, verse 1, Now Pasher, the son of Immer, the priest, who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord. You'd think this guy would know better. He's a priest. He's a chief governor. He serves in the temple. 
But remember, the temple had only become some kind of visible outward token that was lulling them into a false sense of security. There's no power here. God's not in his house anymore. But Pasher comes. He heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Then Pasher smote Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. I talk about evil in high places, putting down anyone that'll speak against him or his approach to things. The details here, he smote him. The original word there in the Hebrew can mean any kind of inflicting injury. It's used elsewhere in the Old Testament for everything from slapping or striking to beating or even slaying and slaughtering in its most intensified form. And that's what this man is doing to Jeremiah. When it says he put him in the stocks, we picture that in early America, for example, where you stick your head and your hands through and they close it in and there you are, usually put in a public place. And that's what happened here. He's put in the high gate of Benjamin by the temple. So as people come to the temple, as they so often did, unworthily, of course, hypocritically, of course, insincerely, of course, but that's the way, it's the place we go. And whoa, what's Jeremiah doing there? He looks like he's been smitten, uh, that he's been roughed up considerably. And there he is in this very public place. There's public shaming. This is what happens to those who go against the establishment. And he's in the stocks, but... Stocks seems to be specifically a more British or early American term. Now, the ancient Israelites perhaps could have used something similar, but the actual word in the Hebrew describes some kind of instrument of punishment that compels you to be in a crooked posture or some kind of distorting of the body. I mean, even in the stocks that we're used to seeing, you do have to bend over and to stand there all day or however long it was would have been torture on the back. But this could have been torture in more ways than one. Again, we don't know specifically what this would be, but the verb it comes from means to turn or to twist, to distort, to contort. This could have been more, more than just mere confinement. This could have been torture. And, and Jeremiah is going through it. God, I thought you said you were going to deliver me. I thought you said I'd be the iron pillar and the defensed city and the brazen wall. And this is, this is harder than I thought. What I'm, I complained about the loneliness before. That was nothing compared to what I'm enduring right now. Well, Pasher brings Jeremiah out of the stocks the next day. And no doubt thought that it had served its purpose. And now Jeremiah is, has been sufficiently warned And he suffered sufficiently, so he won't do this again. But this is what Jeremiah says to him, verse 3 and 4. The Lord hath not called thy name Pasher. Some have suggested that that name means freedom or liberation. We're not totally sure. But who cares? That's not your name anymore. But Magor Misabib is going to be your name. And that name has a more clear translation. It means terror on every side. That's what's going to come to you, Pasher. Remember, I warned you that the things that you're promising the people will not face, that's exactly what you yourselves will face as consequence. So terror on every side. For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will make thee a terror to thyself and to all thy friends, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and thine eyes shall behold it. And I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive into Babylon and shall slay them with the sword. 
Let me be as crystal clear as possible. Babylon is on its way. King Nebuchadnezzar will come. He will put you all into captivity, drag you back to Babylon where you will be in exile. And you specifically, Pasher, you will be a terror unto yourself. I think this is another one of those examples of enforced empathy. What you did to persecute me, you will know what it feels like to suffer yourself at the hands of an enemy. Jeremiah then prays to the Lord, as he so often did. He's confused about what he had suffered. Again, I, I thought you promised that you would deliver me. Well, yes, but deliverance doesn't necessarily mean painlessness. And so Jeremiah asks for this, 7 and 8. O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. But I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. For since I spake, I cried out, I cried violence and spoil, because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me, and a derision daily. He's a little like Job, in wondering, how could I be suffering like this, when I've only been doing what you've asked? In verse 9, he says, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. I'm done. I just can't do it anymore. I thought that it would be easier. I thought that people would listen. I thought God would defend me. I just can't go through with this. And yet, remember in the earlier verse when God said, your words will be fire? Well, it's not just to catch the people that would on fire. It's to keep you brightly burning. And so what amazes me about verse 9, that I, I only read the first half, when he says, I'm, I'm done, I'm calling it quits, I'm taking off my missionary tag because nobody will listen to me and it's just too hard, I'm going home. I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. But he couldn't even get through a whole verse. And I love that this is not split up with a new verse here. In the same verse that he says, it's over, I'm quitting, it ends, but his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. Oh, Jeremiah, you're better than you know. You're stronger than you realize. I knew it all along because I've known you since before you knew yourself. Before you were formed in the belly, I sanctified you. I ordained you to be this kind of prophet. It come, it's deep within you. This is the fire in the bones. And if you think it's hard to open your mouth and let people know the gospel, when you're full of the Spirit of the Lord, it's actually harder to keep your mouth shut. It makes you tired. Forbear I am weary with forbearing, he says. I, I just can't, I can't keep it in. That's the thing about fire. It's just raging. And I just have to give vent to it. And so he does. I love Jeremiah for this. This is one of my favorite insights into the strength of his character. You see reality and humanity and weakness there. But it can't even fill a whole verse. It is burned off by the fire and the bones. In verse 10, For I heard the defaming of many, fear on every side. Report, say they, and we will report it. Another way to put that is denounce Jeremiah. Report anything he says. We're going to keep heaping on persecution. He said, all my familiars, in other words, even my old friends, 
watched for my halting. They waited for me to slip up. They wanted to make me an offender for a word. They were going to see if I did anything that they could persecute me for. They said, peradventure he will be enticed, and we shall prevail against him, and we shall take our revenge on him. So they, even his old former friends, are turning against him. But, he says, the Lord is with me as a mighty, terrible one. Therefore, my persecutors shall stumble. <laughs> They're expecting me to? No, nope, they will first. They shall not prevail. They shall be greatly ashamed, for they shall not prosper. Their everlasting confusion shall never be forgotten. Sound like the priests of Noah with Abinadi looking for him to slip up, make him an offender for a word? Sound like Zeezrom with Alma and Amulek just trying to trap them? Sound like the chief priests and scribes as they asked questions of Jesus? Well, 0 for 3, none of those ones worked. And these plans aren't going to work against Jeremiah either because God is on Jeremiah's side. I told you I'd deliver you. I told you I'd defend you. I'm here to do both. And so... The rest of the chapter, Jeremiah praises the Lord for his deliverance. Though he can't help himself, he also curses the day he was born, just like Job had done. Because, yeah, that was a rough scene. I love the humanity and divinity mingled together in one in that chapter about Jeremiah. Well, 21 then follows, and here Jeremiah is going to give the people some advice. His, his advice to this point has been repent. But now the clay has hardened and there's nothing left but to shatter the pot. And so Babylon is coming, and there's nothing we can do about it. You conceived sin, and now it's time for the birth, and what's coming is destruction. So what are we supposed to do now? Well, now, sometime after Pasher's attack on Jeremiah, King Zedekiah sends Pasher back to Jeremiah. This would be interesting, like, okay, I thought I was in charge and putting you in your place. Well, the king put me in my place, and I'm, and I'm coming back with my tail between my legs. And he says to Jeremiah in verse 2, Inquire, I pray thee, of the Lord for us. For Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, that's just another spelling of Nebuchadnezzar, it's the same guy, he maketh war against us. It's go time. Uh, they've already dragged off some people, but now he's coming down, bearing down upon us all. And what are we supposed to do here? Would you go inquire of the Lord? And find out specifically this. If so be that the Lord will deal with us according to all his wondrous works that he may go up from us. You see what Zedekiah is clinging to? The same thing everyone else has been clinging. All the princes and, pro and false prophets and priests and people. God always comes through in the clutch. Well, if you repent, I totally agree with you. But if you don't, you have no promise. But that's what he's banking on. I'm Zedekiah. I'm really hoping I can be Hezekiah 2.0. Which would make you, Jeremiah, Isaiah 2.0. Are, are we good here? Can you go ask God and, I mean, I'm sure he's going he's gonna to deliver us, right? That's just what he does to his covenant people. Well, emphasis on covenant. How are you doing at keeping them, Zedekiah? Well, Jeremiah responds in verse 4 and 5. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands, wherewith you fight against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans, which besiege you without the walls. Now, so far, so good. It's like, oh, you're going to turn our weapons back? Like, we're not going to have to fight? So this is exactly what you did with Hezekiah, right? Right? Eh, not quite. Let me finish the prophecy. I will assemble them, all these arms that you had been preparing to fight against Babylon. I will assemble them into the midst of this city, 
and I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm, even in anger and in fury and in great wrath. How's that? Not only will God not deliver you, I will fight against you myself because you've been fighting against me this whole time. My arm is stretched out still and you ignored the arm of mercy, so all that's left is the arm of justice and it's about to fall upon you. The sword of my word and of the spirit, that sharp two-edged sword coming from my mouth is going to come and drop down upon you because you have been ignoring it the whole time that I've spoken. Jeremiah goes on and is even more specific. Jerusalem will be destroyed. The people will either be killed here or carried off captive back to Babylon. And you, King Zedekiah, no, you are not Hezekiah 2.0. God is not going to extend your life by another 15 degrees on the sundial. You will die at the hands of the king of Babylon. And verse 8 and 9, Unto this people thou shalt say, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death, just like Moses had done. But you chose the wrong thing. Here's your next choice. He that abideth in this city shall die by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence, the big three. But he that goeth out and falleth to the Chaldeans that besiege you, he shall live and his life shall be unto him for a prey. Now, this would be a really interesting moment for the people and for Jeremiah as well, because in what basically what's happening is God is giving Jeremiah the exact opposite advice that he gave to Isaiah a century before. You see, the question was, do we surrender to the Assyrians? That was the question back in, in Hezekiah and Isaiah's day. And Isaiah said, don't fear them. Fear God. Trust Him. Don't look for other uh, alliance partners. Uh, just trust in God and He will take care of things. And the Assyrians won't even shoot an arrow at you, even though they're right outside the city walls. Okay, I don't know how that's even possible, but they trusted. And the destroying angels went through the camp of the Assyrians and 185,000 casualties later, they retreated in absolute terror. Well, that's not what's going to happen this time. It's interesting that this is a different time against a different enemy, and I'm a different prophet with a different piece of advice, though it comes from the same God. God told Isaiah, don't surrender. I'm telling you, do. Do surrender. It's too late to put your trust in God because you've proven to him that you don't do that sincerely. And so the shattered pot, yeah, it's on its way. And your only hope to avoid death by sword, famine, or pestilence is to actually leave your city walls because this is no longer a defensed city. The walls will do you no good. I was your wall and you ignored me. So go out and bow down on the battlefield before King Nebuchadnezzar and plead for your lives and he will give them to you. He'll allow some of you to stay behind. He'll drag the rest of you back into captivity in Babylon, but at least you'll live to tell the tale. And some of you might live long enough to be the remnant that returns. I'll get to that in just a moment. But that, that's the tricky part. And you can picture the people so angry and in a really twisted way using the words of Isaiah to throw in the face of Jeremiah. You're no Isaiah. You're, well, it's 
because your king is no Hezekiah and you're no people of Judah like they were a century and a little bit more ago. You understand the difference? Each prophet is called for their time and this is Jeremiah's time and this is the message he was called to deliver. So move forward into Jeremiah 22 and again, kind of one last righteousness is your only hope. And so trust me on this and trust God in terms of following this direction, even though it's counterintuitive, even though it's against the counsel he gave to Isaiah. It's a different battle here. So this is your only, your last, your final glimmer of hope, repentance. The Lord tells Jeremiah to go tell King Zedekiah and the leaders of the people this, verse 3 and 4. Thus saith the Lord, execute ye judgment and righteousness and deliver the spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor do no wrong, do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, nor the widow, the big three there, neither shed innocent blood in this place. For if, and this is a huge if, if ye do this thing indeed, then shall there enter in by the gates of this house kings sitting upon the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, he and his servants and his people. Same promise I made just a couple of chapters ago. But... This really is your last chance. It's amazing that God can never seem to bring himself to, no, this is the last one. Okay, fine. But this is the last, okay, fine. But this is the last. Someday it will be the last. And sure enough, Nebuchadnezzar's coming. But if you'll really change and start living the two great commandments, if you'll stop doing wrong vertically, and if you'll, start, if you'll stop hurting the, the most marginalized and vulnerable in your society, to stop sinning horizontally, then maybe there's hope. Otherwise, Jerusalem will be destroyed. In fact, it will be so demolished, well, look at 8 and 9, that many nations shall pass by this city and they shall say every man to his neighbor, wherefore, in other words, why hath the Lord done thus unto this great city? And they shall answer, because they'll know even better than the people of Judah did, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshiped other gods and served them. You see, men of Judah, you will either be an example of the covenant or you will be a cautionary tale. Either way, people will learn from you and they'll see your example, whether it's a delivered city or a destroyed one. Either way, it's a city set on a hill and it can't be hid. So is it going to shed light or shed darkness on the rest of the world? Choice is yours. Later, verse 13 and 14, Woe unto him that buildeth his house by unrighteousness, and his chambers by wrong, that useth his neighbor's service without wages, and giveth him not for his work, that saith, I will build me a wide house and large chambers, and cutteth him out windows, and is sealed with cedar and painted with vermilion. What are you doing? <laughs> You're building this house? You're not going to live long enough to, to dwell there. You are, and, and part of it, the problem too, again, it's the vertical sinfulness against God, but the horizontal sinfulness against your neighbor. You're using your neighbor's, neighbor's service without wages. This is all about you. And I'm number one, and I can use anyone around me. I'll either eat them, or I will underpay them. Either way, I just am going to use them to, make, to meet my own ends. Well, Jeremiah compares the recent kings of Judah to King Josiah and says, you guys just don't measure up. Josiah had done so much to initiate religious reform, and you guys are 
going in the wrong direction. So he says in 16 and 17, he, King Josiah, judged the cause of the poor and needy. And then it was well with him. Was not this to know me, saith the Lord? But thine eyes and thine heart are not but for thy covetousness, and for to shed innocent blood, and for oppression, and for violence to do it. Oh, I knew Josiah, and you're no Josiah, Zedekiah. Will the people change? It sure doesn't seem like it. Well, it's not just the king and the princes that are the problem. Remember, we've seen problems among the priests and the prophets and the pastors, too. And all that trickles down to problems among the people. And so Jeremiah 23, this is a chapter worth going almost verse by verse through, because it is a message to the shepherds in Israel. We'll see a similar version in Ezekiel chapter 34 that is one of my favorite chapters in, in the entire standard works. And this, Jeremiah 23, is the Jeremiah version of that. Verse 1 and 2. Woe be unto the pastors, the shepherds, that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. Therefore thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people. Ye have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, saith the Lord. Oh, wolves among the, the sheep. It's even worse than you allowing the wolves to come so they could scatter. This is like Assyrian. Don't blame it on the Assyrians. That was the fault of the people and the pastors of Israel. And destruction by the Babylonians, don't blame Nebuchadnezzar for this either. This is on you. You see, God is the good shepherd. He wants to lead them beside still waters and feed them upon green pastures. He wants to pass them through the valley of the shadow of death and get them to the other side of it safely. But the shepherds of Israel weren't that way. You've been the wolf in the, in the flock. You have scattered my people. And so verse 3 and 4, I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries, whither I have driven them. I'm going to do this. I will gather them eventually. And I will bring them again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. And then what will I do? I will set up shepherds over them, which shall feed them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. That's the kind of under-shepherds God wants to call. Shepherds after his own heart, we saw earlier. And the flock will not be lacking to me, that begs the question, what am I lacking in my own service to others? Or what are they lacking if I'm the one called to serve them? What are they missing out on because I'm not meeting their needs? What could I do better? And what could I ask God to help me do and be so that the people I'm called to serve can receive everything that they need. I want to be a better shepherd. I want to be like the good shepherd myself, and that's going to take some growing up on my part. In verse 5 and 6, he goes on, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. And this is capital B, just in case we're wondering. Yes, Jeremiah is making a messianic prophecy here. He didn't do it as often as Isaiah did, but here's one of his. I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king 
capital K, shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Notice, in the earth, not just in Israel. He goes on, in his days Judah shall be saved, southern kingdom, and Israel shall dwell safely, northern kingdom. And this is the name whereby he shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. That is such a powerful title for this king of kings, this righteous branch, because it ties the Messiah, the, the, the king, the Lord, to our righteousness. And I think the problem with Jeremiah's people is that well, we're banking on the king coming through for us, despite ourselves. And Jeremiah is saying, that's not how it works. There are two halves of this covenant whole. It's a relationship. Yes, there is the Lord. But where is our righteousness? What a name. What a title. What a, a defining of the relationship. We've got to have both halves. He then repeats, Jeremiah does, what he'd said back in chapter 16. In verse 7 and 8, he reiterates, Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say, The Lord liveth, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. The exodus has been eclipsed. But instead they'll say, The Lord liveth, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country, and from all countries whither I have driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. As beautiful as it was back in chapter 16, in some ways, the placement here in 23 is even better because it's right on the heels of a messianic prophecy. If we're gathering Israel, yes, we're shepherds sent out to find the lost lambs, but the good shepherd himself will be leading. I love this. He is at the head of the gathering of Israel. If you go to the allegory of the olive tree, the final time that the Lord sends his servants out into the vineyard, what's different about this last gathering? This last digging and dunging and pruning, it's the fact that the Lord of the vineyard goes down with them and serves alongside them. This is the true righteous branch. This is the king coupled with our righteousness, and together we are gathering Israel home. It's beautiful. Then verse 9, and jump to verse 11. Mine heart within me is broken because of the prophets. That is, the false prophets that do not truly represent the Lord. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man, and like a man whom wine hath overcome because of the Lord and because of the words of his holiness. You see, I know the consequences of what they are doing, and it, it's shaking me to the very core. Broken heart, my bowels, my bowels, all those things we've seen before. For both prophet and priest are profane. Yea, in my house have I found their wickedness, saith the Lord. You who are called to cleanse my temple are the cause of its filthiness. You are desecrating your holy office and my holy house, and I will not stand for that. These are not good shepherds at all. So he says in verse 12, Wherefore their way shall be unto them as slippery ways in the darkness. They shall be driven on and fall therein, for I will bring evil upon them, even the year of their visitation, saith the Lord. Imagine what that would feel like. You're in the dark trying to find your way, and your feet keep slipping beneath you. This is intensifying the problem that Isaiah described as the blind men groping for the wall. will add some slippery ground beneath you. 
Or have you ever gone down a water slide that is pitch black? Imagine that where you don't know where the next turn or twist will come from. Usually when you can see, you can at least kind of lean in or, or prepare yourself for what's about to come. But in the dark, oh no, there are slippery ways and you have no idea where you're going. In verse 13 and 14, I have seen folly in the prophets of Samaria. That's what happened up north in the northern kingdom when Israel was scattered by Assyria. They prophesied in Baal and caused my people Israel to err. I have seen also in the prophets of Jerusalem an horrible thing. So now down south, they commit adultery. We're back to that. They walk in lies. They strengthen also the hands of evildoers that none doth return from his wickedness. They're the ones peddling false hopes and false promises. So no wonder no one wants to repent. They don't think they need to. They are all of them unto me as Sodom and the inhabitants thereof as Gomorrah. And I say that not only to describe their wickedness, but also to describe their impending fate. Destruction is on the horizon. I guess Jeremiah, if he'd been able to get married and have a child, he could have named that child Maher Shalal Hashbaz, just like Isaiah had before him. That speed to the prey because the, the spoil is on its way. Destruction is imminent. Verse 16 and 17 then, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. They make you vain. They speak a vision of their own heart and not out of the mouth of the Lord. They say still unto them that despise me, The Lord hath said, Ye shall have peace. And they say unto everyone that walketh after the imagination of his own heart, oh, No evil shall come upon you. You see the problem of listening to those that are just scratching your itching ears? Oh yeah, they're telling you just what you want to hear, but that leaves you totally unprepared for what's coming. You don't know you have to repent. You have been lied to. You've been sung lullabies when you should have been up and awake and heeding the trumpet's alarm. In verse 18, and then skip ahead to 21 and 22. For who hath stood in the counsel of the Lord and hath perceived and heard his word? Who hath marked his word and heard it? I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they should have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. Now, in a nutshell, that verse, those verses are describing these false representatives. And God is not claiming them at all. I, this is identity theft. And they are not representing me. There's no power of attorney here. So the promises they make, they're not guaranteed at all. They didn't come from me. But notice how he, how he describes things. Who hath stood in the counsel of the Lord? And then he asks it again. If they had stood in my counsel then things would be different. Now, this is where we English speakers are, are put in a rough situation because of the spelling. We are, well, we try to be careful with the spelling of the word counsel because it, there's two different ways. If I just say the word counsel, you have to ask yourself, are you talking C-O-U-N-S-E-L or are you talking C-O-U-N-C-I-L? Those are two very different words. But unfortunately, when King James translators rendered this, 
There wasn't much of a difference there in terms of spelling. And so they gave it to us in the S-E-L form, where today it's clearly, it should be the C-I-L form. You see, if we're just saying stand in the council, S-E-L, it's like, well, yeah, God has advice and words, and we're just supposed to kind of like sit in it and stand in it. Uh, we're supposed to do what he says. Now, that's true. That's, that's definitely true. And so you can take that interpretation and run with it, but you're missing the real meat of the message. Because what he's getting at is, did you stand in my council, C-I-L, as in the premortal council? I mean, I know Jeremiah did. I saw him there. I remember him. He gets, the, the memory's a little foggy for him, but I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, and my pre-mortal council convened to discuss the plan of salvation and the possibility of sin and the reality of agency and the promise of the atonement. Creation, fall, atonement were all spelled out and discussed and we decided together. I mean, the big question became, whom shall I send? But after the council, we'd are, we already knew what should be done. Jeremiah was there. Were you? I, I love the way this is put. This, again, is another hint of premortality. But what God is asking, it's like when he asks Job. Job, where were you in premortality? Where were you in the council? Actually, I'm sure that he was there, noble and great as he was. But when he says, where were you when all the sons of God shouted for joy? When all the morning stars sang together? Where were you? Do you remember? And to these false prophets giving their false assurances, that's the problem. You were not there. I did not foreordain you to make these kinds of lies. Again, think about the words in Abraham chapter 3, 22 and 23. Now the Lord had shown unto me, Abraham, the intelligences that were organized before the world was. And among all these, there were many of the noble and great ones. And God saw these souls, that they were good, and he stood in the midst of them, and he said, These I will make my rulers. That's the council. And Jeremiah was numbered among them. These false prophets were not. God then chides them for prophesying falsely. But, interestingly, he doesn't close their mouths. He's honoring agency even now. And maybe it's because he wants us to learn to discern between truth and error. I'll let both mouths stay open. Which one will you tune your ears to? He says in verse 28, The prophet that hath a dream, let him tell a dream. Fine. He that hath my word, let him speak my word, but do it faithfully. And then this magnificent question, What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? <laughs> I love that. In fact, whenever I think of the parable of the wheat and tares, that passage comes to mind. Now, we all have to grow up together, and it can be tough to distinguish between the two, but once harvest time comes, and you can tell, once you have gathered out the, the good grain, one of a city, two of a family, brought them to Zion, helped them, gathered them into the garner, oh, then it's crystal clear. And all that chaff that's wait, waiting out in the field for it to be burned, what is the chaff to the wheat? Think about that the next time you get persecuted, Jeremiah. The next time, because it's coming again in the next week, sorry. Uh, next time that you, you need the, some fire in the bones to rekindle your, your faith and, and desire to serve, just look at the chaff and ask yourself that question. What's that? I'll walk it under my feet. The chaff means nothing to the wheat. And so I won't care so much about what they say or think of me. He then says in verse 29, 
Is not my word like as a fire? Oh, it's burning away the dross, saith the Lord. And like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. You see, we're separating wheat from chaff. Now we're separating gems from the slag that it's surrounded by. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that steal my words, every one from his neighbor. Behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that use their tongues, whether as arrow or as bow, and say, he saith, when I didn't. Behold, I am against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord, and do tell them, and cause my people to err by their lies and by their lightness. Interesting the difference there. Lies, their lightness. Oh, what you're doing it's not, doesn't matter. It's not serious. It's not heavy. There's no weight. Don't give it any weight. No, that's, that's false lightness there. Yet I sent them not, nor commanded them. Therefore they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. Oh, God can clearly distinguish between true prophets and false. He hopes that we can. And he is against, I'm against, I'm against those false prophets because they are trying to borrow my authority and amen to the priesthood of that man. Jeremiah 24, then, it's time for another object lesson. We just we recently had the visual aid of the shattered pot. Let's make one that might even be more memorable, shall we? This one will affect not only the eye, but maybe even the nose. Let's try that. In verse 1 and 2, the Lord showed me, and behold, two baskets of figs were set before the temple of the Lord. After that Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah, with the carpenters and smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. And that's kind of this first wave of captives, bringing them back to exile. We're going to try to drag away people that might have made a difference back in Jerusalem. I wonder why they didn't bring Jeremiah with them. He's making a, trying to make a big difference here. But no, he's back and he sees in vision this, these two baskets of figs. But here's the difference. One basket had very good figs, even like the figs that are first ripe. And the other basket had very naughty figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. Now, naughty, I, I get a kick out of that. It's like a naughty fig. Uh, it's, it could mean rotten. It could mean just bad, so disgustingly overripe. Now, I don't, I don't know if I've ever eaten, actually eaten a fig other than in Fig Newtons. <laughs> uh, is that the only use for them? So pick a different fruit that you're more, more accustomed to. In my mind, I want to picture either an apple or maybe even better, a peach. Because peaches are so soft and so sweet when they are perfectly ripe. But, so take a basket of those and you're just, ah, oh, I just want to make it into a peach milkshake. I want to pour some milk in there, have peaches and cream. I just eat the thing whole. It's amazing. But then imagine this other, this other uh, bowl full of peaches. And the way I envision it is maybe there's, it looks like it's ripe on the, on the top, but something smells a little iffy. And when you pick off that top peach, the bottom half of it just kind of drops down into the bowl with the rest because it was only the, the top side that, that still looked presentable. But on the underside and all these other peaches that are beneath it, this is disgusting. There are things crawling around in it. It's its own little ecosystem now. And imagine how, I mean, that's the interesting thing about fruit. And figs here would be the same connotation, that it's hard to beat something that's, that a piece of fruit that's perfectly ripe. It's about as good as it gets. 
especially in ancient Israel, the days before artificial flavors. <laughs> okay. Uh, but there's also few things more disgusting, more revolting than something that is so disgustingly rotten. It's almost two completely different things, even though at core they're the same thing. And people are the same, but will you become righteous or wicked? Will you be good or naughty? Ripe or rotten, choice is yours. What kind of prophets are you listening to? What kind of priests? What kind of uh, pastors? What kind of people will you be? So then the Lord explains his visual aid, just in case you missed the message. Verse 5 through 7. Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. That's interesting. For their good? Well, yeah, ask Ezekiel in two weeks. Ask Daniel the week after that. A lot of good came from this. And the fact that they survived, uh, that, that's a good thing too. So the Lord says, I will set mine eyes upon them for good. And not just that they survive their captivity, but notice this, I will bring them again to this land. That's the best of the good news. I will build them and not pull them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. And I will give them an heart to know me, that I am the Lord. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. We'll see that prophesied more clearly next week in some of the most beautiful passages Jeremiah ever penned. I will give them a new heart. They're going to know me. And that, those years of captivity will actually turn to their good. Ask Ezekiel, ask Daniel, ask his three friends that there are good figs there. But, verse 8 through 10, as for the evil figs, those naughty ones, the evil figs which cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Surely thus saith the Lord, so will I give Zedekiah the king of Judah and his princes and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land and them that dwell in the land of Egypt. Now, the people were escaping down there trying to trust in some other arm of flesh. I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all places whither I shall drive them. It's not just the northern kingdom that's going to be scattered. Part of the destruction of the south involves some scattering as well. And I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence, the same three that are always stalking among them. It will come among them till they be consumed from off the land that I gave unto them and to their fathers. So, which kind of fig would you like to be? I have set before thee life and death. You can be ripe or rotten. The choice is totally yours. But hold on to that promise I made, that there will be those among the good figs that not only survive the Babylonian invasion, that are brought back captive to Babylon, but outlive that, and old-timers, granted, but there will be those that return. We saw that back in Ezra and Nehemiah, old-timers that came back and saw the ruins of their temple and lived to see a new temple rebuilt in its place. And the shouts of joy mingled with the tears of gratitude. That was a beautiful scene back then. Well, that's still in the future as far as Jeremiah is concerned. But notice chapter 25 as he clarifies the timetable. He reminds the people of all the years that he and other prophets have prophesied among them. Okay, let's don't, don't, for, don't lose sight of that. He prophesies or reminds them of all the years that they have been ignored. 
And don't forget that either. Okay. I've been at this for a long time and you just keep plugging your ears against me. Then he describes all the destruction that's going to come at the hands of the Babylonians and finally says in verse 11 and 12, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. Remember, everyone's going to be shocked and what happened here. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. I'm going to make this as specific as I can. It shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon. And that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans and will make it perpetual desolations. That's what Isaiah kept prophesying about. Oh, how thou hast fallen, O Lucifer, son of the morning. That's the king of Babylon is his immediate audience. You think you are as mighty as the son of the morning himself? Well, you're going to come crashing down just like Lucifer did. Oh, no. It's incredible how invincible the, Babylon, the Babylonian empire was made to seem, and yet how incredibly short-lived it ended up being. The Assyrian empire lasted quite a while. The Persian Empire, after the Babylonians, would last quite a while. But squeezed between them, ironically, is the one that is still used most frequently as the metaphor for the wicked world. It's Babylon. Then again, maybe that's why it's used so frequently. The seemingly invincible and yet the ultimately short-lived. Yeah, that describes the wicked world pretty well. So 70 years, can you last that long? Can you just trust knowing that just seven decades later, you'll be back, hopefully, having learned your lesson. Jeremiah then testifies of the Lord's judgment against any nation that descends into that level of wickedness. He makes a long list of the nations that have suffered similar consequences in the past. And then he says in verse 30 and 31, Therefore prophesy thou against them all these words, and say unto them, The Lord shall roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He shall mightily roar upon his habitation. He shall give a shout as they that tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. A noise shall come even to the ends of the earth, for the Lord hath a controversy with the nations. He will plead with all flesh. He will give them that are wicked to the sword, saith the Lord. So this is from the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Fast forward, and ultimately this will be the destruction of all nations among the wicked at the second coming of Christ. No wonder he brings up those, the shouts of those that tread the grapes as he's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. This is the end of all wickedness, but we're going to see a preview of that here with the end of the wickedness in Judah. And then 70 years later, the end of the wickedness in Babylon at least the Babylonian version of it. Jeremiah 26 then follows and asks the question that's been on their minds for a long time. Who are you going to listen to? Will you listen to true prophets or place your faith in false ones? In fact, what will you do when prophets, true prophets come among you? Will you listen or will you silence them? We saw what Pasher tried to do against Jeremiah. Well, keep an eye out for it. In verse 2 and 3, the Lord says to Jeremiah, Stand in the court of the Lord's house, and speak unto all the cities of Judah which come to worship in the Lord's house. And that would include both good figs that are coming humbly and worthily, and of course a lot of naughty figs that are coming hypocritically or insincerely. Either way, stand there at the temple and give them all the words that I command thee to speak unto them. Diminish not a word. 
if so be they will hearken and turn every man from his evil way, that I may repent me of the evil which I purpose to do unto them because of the evil of their doings. Again, he's just suggesting, I can relent. It's not that I'm changing my mind. My mind is set. Righteousness brings blessings and wickedness brings destruction. But you can change your mind and it will end up changing the outcome. So, Jeremiah, give them this prophecy and don't diminish a word. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't, don't soften things. Let them know what, what I'm feeling. So Jeremiah goes and does. He warns them that if they don't repent, then the temple in Jerusalem will end up like the tabernacle in Shiloh. We saw that before. Now, and that's just a distant memory. But those are fighting words, especially those that are at the, the new Shiloh, uh, serving at the temple currently, the prophets, the false prophets, the false priests, and so on. They're so angry that they rise up against Jeremiah and threaten him once again with death. In verse 11, Then spake the priests and the prophets unto the princes and to all the people. There's all these peas, all, they're all gathering together. And they said, This man is worthy to die, for he hath prophesied against this city, as ye have heard with your ears. Sounds a little like the Jewish leaders trying to set up Jesus for the crucifixion, crying out, saying, He's prophesied against the temple, against our city. No, he's warned you of the consequences of your own sins. That's exactly what Jeremiah has done. It's amazing what a type and shadow of Jesus Jeremiah is in these passages. Well, also like Jesus, Jeremiah is totally unfazed by it. And so rather than backing down, rather than diminishing a word, he doubles down. He repeats the prophecy. Oh, didn't hear me? Let me say it all over again. This is what will happen to Jerusalem. He testifies that the warning isn't mine, it's God's. And that, and that way, it's, it's, you can bank on this. There's no way around it, except one. And again, he cries repentance. He says in verse 14 and 15, as an addition, As for me, behold, I am in your hand. Do with me as seemeth good and meet unto you. But know ye for certain, that if ye put me to death, ye shall surely bring innocent blood upon yourselves, and upon this city, and upon the inhabitants thereof. For of a truth the Lord hath sent me unto you to speak all these words in your ears. Sound like Abinadi? Sound like Stephen before he's stoned? Sound like Jesus before he's crucified? Jeremiah has learned a thing or two. Since he, <laughs> a few chapters ago where he's like, God, I'm not sure how this is working out. No, he's fully embraced his role. And he knows that it comes with more than his fair share of suffering. But he also trusts completely in God's promise of deliverance. Then in verse 16, Then said the princes and all the people unto the priests and to the, peop- and to the prophets, This man is not worthy to die, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Hmm, we've even got a stand-in for Pilate here who tried to vouch for Jesus' innocence. In this case, some of the princes and all the people. Notice who's changed. It's interesting. Jeremiah won't back down. And he's still crying repentance and still giving them their, these Jeremiads. And of all those peas, who finally softens? The princes and the people do. Which means who remains hardened? The false prophets and the false priests. Mm, the ones that are most hypocritical, the ones that should be closest to God and end up being most furthest against him, yeah, they're the ones that, that double down on this. 
Well, certain elders of the people then rise, and they say that earlier prophets gave similar warnings during previous times of wickedness. And some, like Hezekiah, hearkened to their words and averted destruction. Then again, others sought out the prophets and killed them. And so that's the elders' point. Which course should we take? We've got both positive and negative examples, and now we find ourselves in a similar circumstance. What do you think, people? What should we do? In verse 24, Nevertheless, the hand of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah, that they should not give him into the hand of the people to put him to death. Oh, thank you, Ahikam. He's, he's one of the first to stand forth and respond to this question. What are we going to do? Well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm not going to let you kill Jeremiah. Oh, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So let's head in this direction. Thanks to the patience of the people, the wisdom of the elders, and the courage of this one man, Jeremiah's life was spared. He lives to do some more crying of repentance. And as we'll see in chapter 27, he lives to perform another object lesson, another Jeremiah visual aid. This one you'll see in verse 2 and 3. Thus saith the Lord to me, Make thee bonds and yokes, and put them upon thy neck, and send them to the king of Edom, and to the king of Moab, and to the king of Ammonites, and the king of Tyrus, and the king of Zidon, by the hand of the messengers which come to Jerusalem unto Zedekiah king of Judah. I mean, what most likely is happening is Zedekiah is probably at the end of his rope. I need all the help I can get, so all hands on deck. And he's sending messengers out, send messengers to me. I need all you Ammonites and Moabites and Zidonians and, and people of Tyre. Come and let's make, let's trust in the flesh on each other's arms, shall we? And maybe we'll be able to stand together against the Babylonian Empire. Well, that's not going to work. But they're trying. And so is Jeremiah, and he's trying to warn them off. Now, remember back in Isaiah when he had messages for Edom and Moab and people all over the place? He's the Lord's prophet, and the Lord cares about all his children. So he has these burdens, they're called. And he's giving these burdens to all of these other surrounding nations. Well, here Jeremiah is doing something similar. It's almost like he's making a, a, a set of visual aids for everybody. A little uh, something to remember the lesson by on your way home. Here I am in my, wearing my yoke and bearing my bonds. Well, take a set for each of you to go back and show your king, this is what is waiting for you if you trust in flesh instead of repenting of your sins. Babylon's coming, like it or not. So sure enough, Jeremiah warns all these surrounding nations, do not trust in false hopes. There is no way to avoid the Babylonian invasion. Your only hopes in surviving it is to go ahead and surrender. They'll let you live. That, that beats the alternative. And he sends the same message to the king of Judah. That's what he's been trying to get across to Zedekiah all along. But he also gives Zedekiah an additional message meant just for him. And it has to do with the vessels of the temple. Because the Babylonians had brought some back home with them, but had left some remaining there in Jerusalem. Well, that was only... Oh, that was, that, that was a, a, a temporary reprieve. And part of this warning from Jeremiah is they're going to come back and take all of the rest of the treasures from the temple that you've left behind. In fact, there won't even be a temple left behind once they're done with it. Then verse 21 and 22, Yea, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that remain in the house of the Lord and in the house of the king of Judah and of Jerusalem, they shall be carried to Babylon. And there shall they be until the day that I visit them, saith the Lord. 
Then, and only then, will I bring them up and restore them to this place. So not, not only am I prophesying the captivity, I'm also prophesying the return. You just won't live long enough to outlast the 70 years. Okay, Zedekiah? Now, speaking of outlasting it, though, and returning, here's Jeremiah with his yoke. That's the first half of the object lesson. Well, chapter 28 is the second half. Because a few years have passed. Babylon is now in charge of the land of Israel and Judah. Zedekiah is on the throne. He's still just this puppet ruler. And a false prophet named Hananiah comes and promises them that, oh, the Babylonian yoke is about to be lifted. I don't know why you're still wearing that stupid thing, Jeremiah. Give it two more years at best. And I promise you, king, in the name of the Lord, that sometime in the next two years, this, the, captives, the captives in exile will return. And they'll bring the temple vessels with them. Well, I, I, I can support your ultimate promise. It's just your timing is way off, Hananiah. And that I can't, I, can't, uh, I can't vouch for. So Jeremiah responds in verse 6, Amen, the Lord do so. You can hear the sarcasm dripping off his tongue. Uh, it's as if he's saying, oh, I wish that was the case. I mean, amen. I, it sure would be nice if everyone came home two years from now. But no, we got closer to 70 still yet to wait. This is just wishful thinking. It won't be that way. And how's Hananiah going to respond? As expected, he's angry about this. He actually goes to Jeremiah, takes the yoke off his neck. I guess he's been wearing it this whole time. And he breaks it. He shatters it down on the ground. And see, I, I can do an object lesson too. So there you are with your visual aid. Let me destroy it to make the point that we'll be out of the Babylonian yoke before you know it. Well, Jeremiah leaves he drops behind him kind of a, ah, we'll see, shrug of the shoulders. Well, come back in two years and we'll see which of us is right. But the Lord commands him to go back. We are not done yet. Turn around, go back, and tell Hananiah this. Verse 13. Thus saith the Lord, thou hast broken the yokes of wood, fine, but thou shalt make for them yokes of iron. No, Hananiah, things are going to get worse before they get better. And in fact, because you prophesied falsely to give them false hopes, let's have Jeremiah prophesy truly to wipe away any false hopes that are out there. This is how things really will be. Verse 16 and 17. Therefore thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will cast thee from off the face of the earth. This year thou shalt die, because thou hast taught rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah the prophet died the same year in the seventh month. Wow. Not only did they not be, they weren't freed within two years. You won't even live long enough to, to see that you were, you were prophesying falsely. It is interesting that ultimately it does become crystal clear who are the true prophets and who are the false ones. Our challenge is to exercise faith in the meantime and to exercise discernment and see their fruits and recognize the Spirit and follow God and the true messengers He has sent our way. Chapter 29 is then where we will finish this week's lesson and pick up next week with a masterpiece in the early 30s of Jeremiah. This final chapter, though, he's left behind in Jerusalem, but still prophet to all of God's people. He sends a letter to the captives there in Babylon. I guess he doesn't want Ezekiel to have all the fun himself. 
So he sends this message in verse 4 through 6. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. Here's my counsel to you. Build ye houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that ye may be increased there and not diminished. In other words, go ahead and unpack your bags, people. You're going to be there for a while. Forget the two-year false hope of Hananiah. I promise it will be 70 years. Long enough to set some, sink some roots. Long enough to build a family, to have kids and grandkids. You see, part of the problem of thinking that destruction is imminent or that ultimate deliverance is imminent too is sometimes you just stand around waiting for either the, good, the bad news or the good news to drop. And you don't do anything in the meantime. Do you remember that passage back in section 51 of the Doctrine and Covenants? One of my favorites. When they are told in the very same revelation, go to the Ohio, you're only going to be there for a little season. But then, act on the land as for years, and it will turn to your good. I love the juxtaposition of that. That's a great contrary. Know that you're not going to be there permanently, but act like you're going to be. Because you'll be able to make a difference even in these short windows of time. I know Elder Packer has taught this, that sometimes people think that the second coming, for example, is so imminent that they wonder, what's the point of going to school? I'll, he'll probably come before I even graduate. What's the point of getting a job when I'm just going to be gathering Israel during the millennium and I don't need any other kind of professional skill set? Why get married and have children when I'm sure the, the choices will be superior in in the millennium, and perfect time to raise children when they grow up without sin unto salvation. I, I, I think I'll wait for that. Well, the problem is you have no, long, no idea how long you'll be waiting. So as Elder Packer has said to them, plan on a long future. I mean, be ready for the second coming as if it were right around the corner. But plan on having children and your children having children. Be prepared for the fast and live for the slow. Can we do that? That's the counsel that Jeremiah is giving them. Because you never know how long this present phase is going to last. Have something to show for it. Make a difference right now. In the mission field, it's like that. You never know when you're going to get transferred. So you don't wait around. And it's amazing how much good you can do within a single transfer. Then verse 7. Seek the peace of the city whither I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it. For in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. Now that one I think would have been counterintuitive. No, these are our enemies. And they dragged us out of our promised land to be stuck here in Babylon. To, we're in exile. We are captives against our will. I'm not going to pray for them. Well, the worse their life is, the worse they're going to make your life. So make, make something positive out of a negative situation and pray for the peace of the city where you dwell. It will come back to bless you. Jeremiah then reminds them, again, you're going to be there for 70 years, so prepare yourself for the long haul. And then he adds in verse 11 through 14, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. And this is going to be interesting for a prophet to say, you know what, I've, I know it's on the Lord's mind. 
and I know how the Lord feels about you. Now, you might assume he's angry and he'll never get over it. And he's, he's, he's kind of cackling with glee that you got what you deserved. But no, listen to this. These are the thoughts that he thinks towards you. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you an expected end. He didn't exile you to vent. He didn't do it to get back at you. He wants what's best, and he hopes this will be redemptive turbulence. He wants to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. I'm up here listening, waiting for you to call in righteousness. Ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord. I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. That to me is so beautiful. Again, words of reassurance. I love Jeremiah here. He's got enough on his plate right there in Jerusalem with another wave of captives probably going to be dragged out any day now. And, and my own life is in danger because of the prophets and priests. And I've got a few people on my side as far as people and, and princes are concerned. But I'm in a world to hurt myself. But no, he doesn't worry about himself. And even more than worrying about the people in his immediate environment, he's thinking about those that have already been dragged east. And does the Lord have a word for them? He does. They're probably at the end of their rope. They're probably feeling forgotten and forsaken. Let me remind them that this can end up being for their good if they'll let it. Let me reassure them of the mercy that I know in God. That's such a beautiful, beautiful reassurance. And a prophet who, who sees afar off and is trying to gather sheep even from great distance. Unfortunately, in the meantime, Jeremiah says, the people that are left behind here with me, yeah, what are we going to face? More sword, more famine, more pestilence. These three horsemen of their early apocalypse are still stalking the land, and Jeremiah is there to try to deal with it. He then finally utters a few more words of condemnation against King Zedekiah, and then lastly confronts one more false prophet, he had Hananiah before, but he's gone now. This one's named Shemaiah, and he lives among the exiles in Babylon. So even, again, from a distance, but he, I don't know if it's just straight from the Lord. He learns about this. Shemaiah had been claiming to be called of God as the new high priest, and he wanted to imprison any rivals back in Jerusalem. So that's probably another way that Jeremiah is finding out about this. What's going on here? Well, this guy back in Babylon... He's among the exiles, but he claims to be the true high priest now. And so he's trying to flex his muscles from a distance and affect life back here in Jerusalem. So anybody that's going to stand in his way, uh, he's, he's threatening and imprisoning and persecuting them. And Jeremiah's probably like, what am I next? Why isn't, I, why, why isn't he gunning for me? Well, we'll see. But notice these two last verses, 31 and 32. Thus saith the Lord concerning Shemaiah the Nehelamite. Because that Shemaiah hath prophesied unto you, and I sent him not, he wasn't in the council, and he caused you to trust in a lie. Therefore thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will punish Shemaiah the Nehelamite and his seed. 
he shall not have a man to dwell among this people. Neither shall he behold the good that I will do for my people, saith the Lord, because he hath taught rebellion against the Lord. Talk about an ultimate irony. If he's been getting people to trust in lies, then it's making all these false promises to give false hopes. The irony is there is real hope to be found by trusting in real promises from real prophets because God really does want to bless his people. There is a promised end, an expected end, as he said. There is good that will come upon my people, but not the kind of good that Shemaiah is seeking for himself, not the kind of good that he is promising the people falsely. And sure enough, he won't live to see either version of it. No good for himself and not live to see the good that I'm, I've promised my people. It's interesting here as we wrap up this week's material that here's the choice before you. You've got true prophets and false ones. You've got true hopes and false hopes. You've got a true and living God. Will you be true to him? Or will you be unfaithful? Covenant infidelity that we saw running through the whole story. It is interesting that historically and literally, this first half of Jeremiah takes place against the backdrop of conflict. Babylon against the world that they are taking over. But that larger scale battle is just the background for a lot of personal battles that are taking place, chapter by chapter by chapter. Constant battles that rage within. Battles between true prophets and false prophets. Battles between good figs and naughty figs. And which ones we want to become. Battles between scatterers and gatherers. Choice is yours for that one too. Will you be a hunter after power and the lusts of the flesh? Or will you be hunting for people that are afraid of God and need the reassurance you can offer them that God wants to bless and forgive them if they'll just come out and confess and repent of their sins? This is the age-old battle of good versus evil, of light versus darkness, of spiritual fidelity versus spiritual infidelity. Covenant keeping, covenant breaking. The choice is ours. So, my friends, if, if we have allowed the wickedness of the world to, to dampen our zeal, if it's made our flame flicker a little and maybe get close to dying, please trust in a God who knew you even before you came to this earth. Trust in a God that sent you to this place for such a time as this. Trust in a God that will deliver you and that will fan the flames of your faith till there is fire in the bones. Let it burn, my friends. Let your light so shine because there's a dark world out there that needs you. <laughs>